Hey everyone, uh, this week uh, the Oxnard Hardcore family got some bad news that one of our brothers, Nick Ulmer, had uh, passed away actually last year um, and he kind of went around the internet and so we wanted to do a little something for him. Um, I have his friend and old bandmate Eric Kudla, aka Boner, on the phone right now to uh, say a few words about him. And uh, you can take over and just let me know when you're done. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, Nick, uh, Nick was one of those guys um, that you would see at every show. And but you never really talked to him because he was always just kind of doing his thing behind his camera. But he was at every show taking pictures of every band. And I just kind of bumped into him randomly out front of a show uh, at the living room um, in uh, Santa Barbara. And he sold me my first Infest record um, when No Man's Land first came out. And uh, or No Man's Slave, sorry, No Man's Slave first came out, and uh, he just was doing distro out in front and just said, "Here, buy this," and that was pretty much the start of my friendship with him. And we, you know, he showed me pretty much everything worth listening to. Well, can there be a better start? I mean, what do you mean? Can there be a better start than getting that Infest record? Like, you say no more about Nick, right? Like, you have to buy this. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was. I didn't even know who he was or I hadn't heard of Infest at the time. Yeah. And he's like, you need to listen to this. Yeah. And that, like I said, like, yeah, perfect start. I mean, that was looking back on it. I mean, there could be no other better way to have started that friendship. Right. Was over something like Infest and, and music um, at a show. Um, and so, so from there, you know, we, I was in heavy artillery at the time and we needed a guitarist and, I never really thought of it, but uh, uh, eventually remembered that Nick played guitar. And so he joined the band and it completely changed the dynamic of the band. Again, bringing in, I mean, he's hes phenomenal guitar, um, surprisingly phenomenal, um, um, writing all the best riffs. I mean, he listened, again, started with Infest, listened to all the best music. I mean, he showed me um, Spaz and Sticky and all the Slap of Ham stuff, all the 625 stuff, all the Japanese thrash you know, like uh, Total Fury and Nice View and Jelly Roll Rockheads and all those bands. He showed all of us all of that stuff. And so when he came into the band, he brought all that stuff. And, um, you know, that that uh, when someone is shy and stuff like that um, at a show, you know, I mean, uh, normally a lot of times they're pretty outgoing and, and wild when they're having a good time. And so it really um, it, it uh, translated on stage as uh, a lot of people who've seen him play. Um, and El Mariachi and bands after Heavy Artillery. I mean, he's with his guitar on fire. He'd break it all the time, jump into the crowd. I've got plenty of pictures of him on people's shoulders during a show. Um, and it's just, you know, it was, there's, I don't know. And he was, after, a, lef- he was a lefty. And he was left-handed. Yeah, on top of it. Uh, um, and uh, so he couldn't borrow anybody's guitars. He had to bring his own all the time. But uh, yeah, no, Nick was... Um, Somebody different, something different, you know. And uh, as you can see from everybody's comments, um, after we all found out, we all kind of just found out by rumor, um, and uh, just just recently. And uh, you can see how big of an impact he has on everybody, everybody, you know, from from people that just saw him at shows to people that went to their first show with him. And so it's yeah, he was a big big impact. Yeah, universally respected, and mm-hmm. um, even though his his music taste like skewed more to like the wild side, like you're talking about, mm-hmm. was never disrespectful to like the 
straightforward stuff that like I was doing, you know, like a lot of times people oh, yeah. are like, Oh, I don't get why like this generic shit is popular and like they shit <laughs> on it, you know? And well, he, he was, was never a guy that took that approach. Not even that he I legitimately loved it. He loved all of that stuff. I mean, he was way into in control. He was way into the straight edge hardcore stuff and he was way into all music. I mean, he got me into Wire and Captain Beyond on the rock side. Um, when we were on tour, his tapes were just ridiculous all over the place. Um, Piss Jeans and and uh, Youth of Today and and like on the same tape. Yeah. You know, and it was it was just across the board, just wild shit. He's the one that got me uh, into like Jimmy Jimmy Hendrix jamming with BB King. <laughs> and he was just like I said, it was anything that was good. He already knew about. Yeah. And was like, oh, you don't know about it? Here you go. Have it. You know what I mean? I want you to listen to this. He would make me mixtapes and CDRs of just stuff I should listen to. And that's how I found out about, again, about Piss Jeans and about Knuckle Scraper and about Mind Eraser is because he's just like, oh, you should listen to this. It's cool. And that's how he was to everybody. Just, hey, you should listen to this. This is cool. Absolutely. And, and, and it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was but, awesome. Like that's shy, how it should be. Shy, but also infectious. No, oh, totally. Absolutely. So you want to, yeah. you want to, yeah. Anything else to say to wrap it up? Um, you know, um, not really. I mean, it's, I mean, I've got, everybody's got a hundred million stories and I've got a lot, a lot of fun ones. I'm with Nick, um, just on tour. And, um, one time, one thing I really remember is we, on our very first tour, uh, I was supposed to take my van and it broke down. So we ended up taking his little S10 pickup with all three of us on tour across the border into Canada. I mean, by the time we got to Canada, it was toasted. It was not running right. It was not doing good. It was blowing smoke the whole time. If you've ever been to Vancouver Island, um, it's you take a ferry. Sure. And they, they when we were coming back off, it stalled in the toll. Oh, no. And it would not start. And they said, you're not bringing this truck onto the ferry. <laughs> and so what we did, we pushed it out into the parking lot, smashed all the windows, popped the tires, just destroyed this car left it for stolen, took all of our stuff and just took the train back onto it. <laughs> and so that was, and then we got back and then Nick just had a bicycle Yeah. and that was it. I mean, that was, and that just, you know, I think it kind of instilled, you know, like the, whatever, like, yeah, it's a car, do it, smash it. Let's go. We got to keep going. And, and this is part of the memory. Um, you know, just kind of the way he lived about stuff is, you know, yeah, whatever, smash it up, let's do it. And then we'll go on to the next thing and, and have a good time. So so that was a really fun memory with him on our very first tour uh, up to Canada and back. That was beautiful. All right, yeah. well, thank you, Eric. No problem. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, now we have the man, the legend, Tony Molino from uh, In Control and Annihilation Time and Charman and every Ooh. band that uh, ever needed a drummer. <laughs> The town drummer for Oxnard. That's right. Definitely the town drummer for Oxnard. Fucking the mascot. <laughs> um, yeah. So Tony's here to say a little bit about um, our fallen brother, Nick. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say uh, Nick's an old friend of mine. And back in the days before like either of us knew how to play an instrument, uh, we would always watch MTG after school at his mom's house, you know? And... Uh, you know, junior high, all that kind of thing. And then finally, one day, we went and got gear, and then we jammed at my house for, you know, all of junior high. We weren't very good, but 
it was the beginning of me doing what I do. So he's really important in that way. And then also just one of the coolest, most talented people that you could ever meet, you know? And, uh, it's just one of those things where it's kind of shocking that he died because I don't know if it was anything negative or depressing or anything like that, but it's weird how you can never tell what some people are thinking. You know what I mean? It's pretty weird. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. He was my best friend in junior high, or one of them. And, uh, I don't know. It's pretty sad that he's gone, I guess. So initial distrust, initial distrust owns, owes everything to Nick. Sorry, what was that? Initial distrust owns, owes everything to Nick. Oh yeah, definitely, dude. Like, uh, Back in the day, that's how it started. You know, me, Nick, and there was Sean and Alex Byrne. And then Alex Byrne went to your band, dude. Yeah, AAL. <laughs> yep, that's how that started. And then we, uh, Sean bounced from what we were doing. Joel Perkins and then Todd Jones came in and Eric Barker and all that. And that's initial distrust. Or Todd was later, but initial distrust, Joel Perkins, uh, Josh Poole, Eric Barker, me. And, uh, yeah crazy and then that led into in control later on after stand your ground that was todd and then now you got nails and now you got retaliate and now you got charman yeah it's pretty crazy yeah just evolved yeah it's crazy that he was there for the start of uh the, the tony molino drumming journey yeah insane way before the the powerhouse too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's crazy right. you got anything else on nick uh, I don't know. RIP. It was good talking to you too, Zach. Good luck on your podcast. Thanks for show. Thanks. All right. Oh yeah. Uh, we have another one of Nick's friends, Fernando Hernandez, and uh, you can take it over. Cool, man. So yeah, thank you for for doing this, Zach. It's really cool of you. Um, yeah, man. I guess uh, I I found out a uh, man. I, I found out like two weeks ago, and. Um, uh, I just said uh, I was just really busy with work and it's, it's kind of like a transition time with that. Like I currently teach in Oxnard, right? Uh, you know, I wanted to ter- teach in my community and give back. So I'm teaching on the South side. So I'm moving schools and uh, my position got cut. So that kind of was weighing on me. So when um, my friend told me, uh, Dante, he was, I was just like, fuck, like I kind of just kind of, you know, you're going really fast with things in life and you hear something like that and you're like, all right, man, uh, I'll, I'll deal with it later. So now that like kind of I have more time, like uh, we got on break, and then um, when a uh, cola boy posted it, um, I was like, oh my god, man! Like this, this really happened. So, um, you know, when I start to think about Nick and like that era, you know, like obviously like you guys were a few years older than us, like, um, and what you guys were doing, you know, like within control and stand your ground, that was really it was a really to me, it's like a. I think we're really lucky that we lived that golden age of hardcore, like that 97 era. And so when I look back at that, I think about that in like in context, I think about like, man, like, you know, like this great scene here, like the great bands that played floor punch, like 97, a 10 yard fight, like what you went on to do. And like Todd Jones, like it's like you revitalize this area. Right. So then, that going back to like Nick, like, you know, you guys were like, you know, we all went to Oxnard high and like, I would see you guys. And then like me and Milo and Javi and, uh, Robert, all of us were like, like younger than you guys. So 
I don't know how I met Nick. Nick was like, you know, like a punk kid, you know, like outside the box kid. And like, he was like, I guess like your, your age, right? I don't know. You guys uh, graduated in 99. I'm 98. So I think he was, he was Tony's year, 99. Okay. Yeah. So, so we were like by the lockers and there was other cats, um, Chris Faxon and Ryan Vizina and then Nick. Right. And then Isaac Castro. And like, um, I don't know. I don't even know how we met, man. Like, but Nick was just automatically cool. And like, um, he like, you know, he never tried to cool guy us and like, like Nick, what was cool about Nick and, and everybody from that crew, like that then the '99 era cats were like, like Nick was already into like all this outside the box stuff, right? Like at that time, I was on like Profane Existence, Crust, and all that, right. and like Anarcho Punk, yeah. And you you guys were like at the time, I was like I wasn't too into like the Straight Edge '97 revival stuff, like the the kind of New York hardcore kind of stuff yet. And then like so nick was like kind of met me where i was and he was like oh you should check out like ripcord or you should check out like this and then i was like oh, okay cool and i kind of started getting into that and like what i remember is that like nick he never like kind of like clowned on anything that that i was into right he was always like kind of oh yeah that's cool like but he would kind of keep on pushing it further right so then i graduated in 2001 and then like I kind of ended up going to Ventura College, and I mean, at, at that point, right? You remember, like, shit was really popping, man. Like, like No Reply, Life's Hall, like, just like a really golden, a golden era. Yeah. And um, uh, he, he, like Nick, you know, he would end up playing guitar, and then he had his his fanzine, right? Like, Carnjasada, uh, take take pictures at shows, and uh, you know, let's Fred, take a, let's take a moment to to think about how sick that fucking name is, Carnage Asada. Dude, I know, man. Like, and he had, he had a. That's brilliant. Dude, amazing. I guess what I'm saying, Nick was like, Nick, and here's the thing Nick was really funny, man. Nick was funny, and like, you would think he was quiet, but he was funny as hell. He was into like, I mean, I can't think of like the comedy shit he was into, but he was into like, just like, just like different shit, right? Like, like, I I was probably like, just like into the mainstream, like Martin Lawrence or some shit like that. Right. And then he would bust out with like some other, like, like shit that was like kind of like just obscure shit that you're like, oh fuck, man, I never would have thought about that. Yeah, he's and, like, and, I, I think you summed it up a little bit, like saying, like Nick was underground to the bone, but yeah, like, dude. but he never big leagued you. No, you know? oh no, it's like no, you man. you can come off the, you know, it's like he might have not been into all the stuff we were doing, but or like it wasn't his main thing, but he never shit on it. You know, same no, thing. Man. It's like whatever you're in a Martin Lawrence, he's not gonna be like, oh, you're a fucking pussy. He's just like no. you got to check this shit out, you know? Yeah, yeah, and and then he would he would see the humor like, you know, like mainstream shit, right? Like that was going down. Like he would get it, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah," that he would see the humor. Like he, again, dude, that's which is rare, man. Like dudes like him. Like I was like, man, he would never like like clown on it, right? Like he would see, oh, okay, I see what's funny about that. Like cool, hey, like and he would laugh at it too. Right. But then he was like you said, underground to the fucking core, man. Like. And so, and then, you know, I think I, I don't, you know, I don't want to sound nostalgic. I hate that, but I feel like that, that generation was like pre-internet really when it really took off like full blown, like it is now. Definitely pre-high speed internet, right? Yeah. Pre-high speed. Right. So I, I know you and everybody from like you guys, like, I know you wrote letters like crazy, man. I know you sent mail order like crazy. And I know that's how you linked up with a lot of people, you know, like, when you were getting into stuff, you know, like flyers and stuff. So for, for Nick to be into all that, it was like, he really loved like 
hardcore and like music and punk and like underground subculture so then so then carnage asada man like i mean he had like diverse like fucking bands like featured in there like so that was that was what was cool and then like another memory is like then um he would take us to all these cool shows in la santa barbara like and he would be at those shows too taking pics like i had a band um called vyo like that, that would end up starting like 2002 2003 right. and like he recorded our, our first demo like nick recorded it and then um nick took us to our first show like because we used his like he had like a white pickup truck with like a camper and like he took um he took like he took his like amps for us and everything and, like it was uh with the devros and uh and isla vista and annihilation time was supposed to headline but then the cops shut it down so this was Nick, man. Like Nick was like sowing seeds, man. Like Cola Boy. Then he did a, a heavy artillery and with with a Eric, and then a, he did a mariachi with Cola Boy. And this is already like in 2009, 2008, 2007. So like Nick was prolific, man. Like he ended up doing those generator shows too over there at Perkins. Like, um, like dude, he made me dude mixtapes and like comps and stuff for me, like. I mean, how think about that art? That art is kind of lost now, you know. Like, yeah, like taking the time for you, like for someone else that's getting into it, and you're like creating something with your hands, taping it from vinyl or whatever. And like, he would put a dude, he would put on badass bands on there. Like, he put on like one, like he had like Void, like uh, he had like Rat Ratus from Finland, like international shit, man. Like, yeah. then he put Saccharin Trust, like man, it's like it's like he all was like. The place yeah dude like which is what it should be you know like yeah. pushing you and like supporting you and like i mean man, this this is it was like fucked up man because like like right you know oxnard's going through some some rough times now like with the budget cuts at the city level like budget cuts in the district like carnegie art is closing like what it, youth have like youth don't have a lot of shit to do and like nick was like somebody who was supporting youth and oxnard to be creative you know like I, honestly, I mean, I'm gonna just straight up say it, man. Would there be a cola boy right now, Matt? What he's doing, you know, which is dope. Like, would there be a cola boy without Nick? You know, like, I think I think he represents what like every scene, like somebody that that creates like this fertile, like kind of like a like ground for other people to grow and do like be themselves. You know, and that was Nick, man. Like, which was just dope as fuck. And you did that too, man. You did that too. Like, people like you, all the shows you guys set up, like. So it's like I think it's like I don't know it's one of those moments that makes you it's it's fucked up man I just fucked up because I don't see anybody I don't know like the way shit is now I feel with social media too is like people who who get into art or music or shit like that now it's like they got they, it's like this kind of like like you said one up one upmanship like cool guy in big leaguing like it's like image is a lot I feel I mean I don't know yeah there's and too like, much there's too much content now. Where yeah, like yeah. where you almost you don't have time to like everything, so you, everything is shitting on everything. Where like before, it's like I don't have enough stuff, and like yeah, someone comes along and shows you like four new things. Like I'm gonna latch onto every piece of it. Yeah, yeah, man, and and then he's Oxnard, man. I mean, like everything he did, like Carnage Asada, Oxnard, like you know, like and and I think I don't. That, that's what I remember, man. I remember this dude that just put out so many things, like like in that time, you know, of your life. I mean, dude again man nostalgia like i don't want to be like that but no we don't know, i don't think i don't think we have know? to be nostalgic let's 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 like, embrace the idea of someone being passionate about something and loving it and having the balls to latch on to things and share it with people and exactly. say these things that i discovered are a piece of me 
and I want to share them with you. And exactly. everyone should look around and think about positive things in their life that are important to them and share them with your friends and tell your friends that you love them and be there for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, like you said it, man, like sharing, that's a big thing. Giving a part of yourself for like, for like our, that community, man, like, you know, and every, 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 you know, hardcore still going, still so many dope ass bands, like, I know, and that's, and that's special. Like right now we have cool bands going, you know, mega point and, and dead heat and like people doing shit and ox, like photographers, like Joseph, you know, kid, I'll give him a shout out. Um, like Fred was still doing stuff like that barbershop in Ventura, mucho gusto. Like, so there's still like, you know, it's, this is the youth coming up now. Like this is their time too, you know? And like, we're all still a part of it, but you know, what Nick did, you know, share, sharing that special time of our lives, like, you know, like, you know, another, it's like another historic era of Oxnard at that moment, I think. And like, and he, he helped create that too. So, you know, like rest in peace to Nick, man. Yeah. Rest in peace to Nick. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's going to wrap it up for the, the Nick tribute. Um, Nick Omer, rest in peace. And everyone tell your friends, you love them. And, this is a it's a weird era in society in America where everyone wants to be a fucking hard ass. I think everyone needs to tell tell people you love them, you know, and uh, appreciate things. And putting yourself out there and caring about things is more badass and that's more hard than acting like you don't care about shit. Those are the real motherfuckers are the ones that put themselves out there and admit they care about things. So rest in peace to Nick, and uh, that's all. Hundred eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. Hey guys, if you want to support the show, please like, rate, review, subscribe, do all that stuff wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, spread the word to your friends if you can. You know, let's try to get the word out on all this stuff uh, if you enjoy it. Also, please consider becoming a Patreon, patreon.com slash 185milesouth. Whatever you guys can help out with is awesome. You know, the the dollars, uh, you know, people that donate a dollar, it's fucking awesome. I appreciate it very much. It means a lot to me. Um, that's all. Let's get on with the show. I like the soft open like that. So today uh, we have Brandon Cruz from Dr. No and... Plenty of other bands the from the Brandon Cruz band. Uh, yeah, I was called out for a little little while. I saw the shirt at Tang. <laughs> oh god! And if they would have had a big boy size, I would have bought it. It was sick, dude. Yeah, Curtis put that out without me really knowing he was going to put out a shirt and a poster and all this shit. It was a ego project, I guess. He asked, "Do you want to do a solo thing?" And I just had a bunch of stuff laying around. And but that shirt is sick. Like I really did want it. Is that the one with him as Eddie? I think it's him jumping. 
okay. Yeah, so it's, it's like when it I was, was in sick. when I was in Twister Naked, it was a photo from. Oh, okay. Like, oh, I'm not in this. it's a sick like full color photo. Yeah, like it's, it's in a the, sick shirt. In the background, we have Ismail Hernandez, who ju- was just interviewed. Not, obviously, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> 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 so this is recorded on June first, two thousand nineteen, and. uh yeah, Brandon Cruz. So, let's talk about your. Can you can you give like a a retrospective on your childhood? Because you're, you're a a child actor. Thanks for and, making that uh, distinction of a child actor. Because well, <laughs> I was a child from '69 to '72. The TV show I was on aired, and then once it was over, I was just like ten, and. Growing up in that whole thing was was really weird. Like, my family is rather dysfunctional. I grew up on Silver Strand and in town in Oxnard and back and forth with aunts and uncles and cousins and assorted, you know, bikers and drunks and drug addicts and shit. And I thought, okay, this situation's a little fucked up. I see all these kids on TV. I remember watching, um, like, the Andy Griffith show. You know, and watching Ron Howard, I'm like, that guy doesn't have to go to school. That guy doesn't, he probably, you know, he's, he doesn't have to be around his family. Because I kind of didn't want to be around mine. And uh, I started telling people, when I'm on TV, it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. When I'm on TV, this is going to you know, be different. And somehow, uh, I guess my mom got sick of hearing me say I want to be on TV. And they took me to some place in Hollywood that was a total ripoff place, like the like the Barbizon School of Modeling type of thing, where they just take the money, they take the pictures, and then you never hear from them again. Well, they put my picture in the window, and some guy that worked on Eddie's father was walking by, and he went, oh, we're looking for a kid like that. And he walked in, and he asked about me, and the place was very unprepared to deal with that because nobody'd ever come in and ask for anything from them. <laughs> and he said, Well the guy lives in Oxnard and that's you know, back then that was a like a, a day trip, you know, where you put down the seat in the family station wagon, put in a mattress, put all the kids in it, and you know, you took a day trip to sure. to Hollywood. This was not in Hollywood. Um but the the guy got in touch with my folks. Uh, my mom was in the hospital, I think. My grandparents took me down to Culver City. And I couldn't read. I was in first grade. And so first grade in Oxnard, you don't know how to read yet. And uh, I walked in and I got the part. I, I don't think I knew how to read in first grade either, so don't feel bad. Hollywood Beach School. Well, it's, it's still Oxnard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The lovely Ellen Hernandez has just served me a cold beverage. So, Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I got this part when I was like six. And uh, we filmed a pilot in 68 and the show premiered in 69. And then by the time I had to come back up to Oxnard to like get assignments from school because I had a private tutor on the set, um, I went to the school and the principal said, okay, well, you can't go out on the playground. I was like, why not? He said, well, how do we put this delicately to a six or seven-year-old? Um, half the school wants your autograph, the other half wants to beat you up. Jeez. And these are people I grew up with. Yeah. So I was like, okay. 
being famous sucks. I didn't really know I was. Yeah. I went to bed before the show was on. I didn't see it. I didn't know that it was as big as it was. And so I was this awkward, didn't feel like I fit in kid all of a sudden now really not fitting in. Sure. Even among the people I grew up with. Sure. And, you know, the, the, the perks that come with being that really distort the fuck out of a kid. And was well, so young. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I, I might have like two memories of being six, you know, like that's so young. Yeah. And like my, my life from six to 10 is, you know, in vivid color yeah, <laughs> documented with, you know, thousands of photos and, and a, a bunch of TV episodes. And, and then I finished that show, um, 72 and immediately started doing guest spots on like Kung Fu and Gunsmoke and Medical Center and shit like that. And I never really got to go to school. Yeah. You know, I had to go once in a while to go get assignments and they would have me go to schools in LA to get the assignments because Oxnard was not really where I was living anymore. I was, I was located down in LA from the studio. They got the family a house and you know we moved all over really so i never really had like a group of friends some of the guys i grew up with on silver strand and stuff still you know i could still show up and it didn't matter like you know it'd be an afternoon and they'd be home from school and i'd be home from the set and it was well who can ride the longest wheelie or who can ride their skateboard you know through this thing or over this thing or you know, who's going to paddle out because the waves are kind of big and the older guys are out there, you know, heavily. Uh, so I kind of found a, you know, a, a solitude or an acceptance in the skate and the surf world. I never did team sports. I was, you know, I wasn't going to go, go play Little League or, you know, Pop Warner football or anything like my brothers did because it was just too much of a scene when I showed up because I was known. And I had a really fucking warped sense of identity you know on one hand i was this terrified scared freaked out kid and on the other hand i was this famous kid actor and depending on the day or the hour i was either an insanely egotistical self-centered brat or really reclusively not wanting to be with anybody but the older people from Silver Strand and in town, like my cousins that were all lived on Paula Street that were like hardcore Vato gangsters, <laughs> they didn't give a fuck. Sure. And, and they all drank and they all got loaded. And I was around adults almost the whole time from six to 10 till you know, 12, 13. And so I started doing what, what they did. And my parents were not incredibly watchful. Yeah. Um, and you're the oldest of, I'm the oldest of, of four, yeah. And then, can you go down the line how how much younger they are? Uh, let me see. Zorba is he's three years younger than me, so he's like almost fifty-four. I just turned fifty-seven. Then there's Mandy, who's like I guess fifty-two, and Blake, who's fifty-one. Do they all go out with you when you're living in the house in LA? No, uh, half the time I wasn't even around Mandy, Darren, and Blake when I was growing up. Yeah. So I got kind of separated from that whole thing. So it was like weird that you know I didn't get to grow up with my brothers and sister. Yeah. So around seventy five, I was thirteen. 
I was living with my grandparents in Camarillo and had to go to junior high out there because Ocean View, where I should have gone to school, or or Blackstock, it was one or the other, um, said it's too much of a disruption. And either he's going to get his ass kicked or we don't know what's going to happen because it was fucking crazy back then, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the 70s in, in Oxnard. And the kids didn't know how to handle somebody being famous, and I didn't know how to handle being famous. And well, I, I think uh, that, like, so I went to school in Camarillo. And then I was I, then high school – or no, then I did Bad News Bears in 75, and that, like, really catapulted more, like, attention. Um, and, like, I was stoned the entire time we filmed that show. Yeah. Like, I was they, – they had trash cans full of beer for the grips and electricians and the, the whole crew. And me and the guy, Jackie Earl Haley, who played Kelly Leak on that show, we just – we'd grab a handful of beers and go over this little – mound of grass with this 19 year old girl that lived across the street we were both like 13 and we'd smoke these little pinner joints of shitty mexican weed and drink beer and then they'd be looking for us and we'd go and film our scenes and we were just stoned the whole time (laughs) and i got really into surfing and skateboarding and then in 76 they decided oh we're premiering bad news bears in london and we're going to send some people over and some people couldn't go, and it ended up just being me and my grandma. And we checked into this hotel in London, and it was July 3rd. And we're checking in, and some guy yells out, Hey, there's that kid from Eddie's father in Bad News Bears. And I look up, and it's these four guys in leather jackets and long hair, and one of them knew me. And I'm like, uh... <laughs> who are you? He goes, we're the Ramones. <laughs> I didn't know who the Ramones were. Sure. Uh, but this guy was Eddie's father fan and, you know, it was Johnny. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, we're a band and we're from New York. And I go, oh, my uncle lives in New York. It ended up, they knew my uncle. What? And my grandma figured, well, if they're a friend of Uncle Jack's, they must be nice guys. Mm-hmm. And she was used to, you know, her son was a biker, so these guys didn't look much different. Sure. You know, their leather jackets and long hair. And Johnny was a really nice guy, and he said, you got to come see our band play. So I got to see the Ramones play in London in 76, and I just went, fuck, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is it. Like, yeah. this is Black Sabbath played at 45. Yeah. You know, this is this is what I feel inside. This is, like, I found a group of people that, didn't give a fuck who I was. Yeah. I mean, Johnny was. Johnny was a fucking weirdo fanboy about shit, but <laughs> it's just the, the punk rock scene was like in London then. It was, you know, it was all these, well, it was London in 76. So the people in the audience were, you know, people that were in bands. And I think the Pistols and the Clash played the next night in Sheffield. And I hadn't heard of these bands. I didn't know. I knew about Devo. And Beefheart and Zappa and, you know, my mom would always play Iggy and MC5 and, and stuff like that because she was, you know, a subver- subversive hippie. And uh, when I was doing Eddie's Father, she worked for MGM Records, so we got to meet a lot of people. And I got to go to a lot of shows. I get the Troubadour and the Whiskey when I was a little kid. So, you know, different types of music were always of interest and the more kind of less mainstream or the the more far out freaky shit. I mean, 
Yeah, you know, Zappa, I lived across the street from Zappa for a little while. And Captain Beefheart handed me, and I didn't know it was Captain Beefheart. We called him Uncle Don. Uh, I didn't even know it was Beefheart for a long time. He handed me a cassette in, I think, 73 or 74. And he goes, if you like us and our weird shit, kid, you'll love this. And Devo had opened for him yeah. in Ohio. And he had a cassette of them. And I listened to it, and I heard Jocko Homo, and I just went, yeah, this is interesting. It's kind of weird, but, you know, it, it had my interest. Then I met the Ramones. They told me, hey, if you go back to New York, ask your uncle to take you to these clubs. So I got my first taste of punk rock in New York, and then I came back to L.A., and the mask was going on. So we were in Hollywood one day. I think I had an audition for something, and I didn't get it. And we went to a record store, and there was this guy in there. His name was Helpy. Or I think it was Poser. I think it was the first Poser that was not where Poser was on Melrose. It was off Hollywood Boulevard somewhere. He said, well, there's the mask, but I don't know if they'll let you in. You're kind of young. And I, my grandma drove me there. It was like 7 o'clock, and you could hear music, and there were people hanging out. And I was kind of scared. I had long hair. And it was just it was an older group of people. But Brandon Mullen knew who I was somehow. Um, I think Alice Bag recognized me first off and Belinda because Belinda, when I went to high school in Camarillo, Belinda was a cheerleader in, in like Westlake or somewhere. So she knew who I was. So I got to like get a little tour of it and listen to a band rehearse. And I was like, okay, these guys are pretty fucking out there. And (laughs) I wasn't quite ready to get into it. So I like experienced it. I went back a couple times you know, I saw a couple of, you know, really amazing bands. I get to, I met Black Randy and got to see them play. And he couldn't hear me tell him my name over the noise when I first met him. Kept asking my name. I kept saying Brandon. And he went, random, random. So he took me into the club and he started introducing me to people going, this is random. And there was a band called The Randoms. Yeah. So. You're lucky that didn't stick. People, <laughs> Could have ended up with a weird punk name. Yeah, random would have been a good name. No, it's actually. not a terrible name. No, it's not bad, and it would have been very ironic, right? But, if you're coming from being famous, and now your nickname's random. That wasn't lost on me, um, <laughs> and I kind of wish it had stuck. But I didn't, you know, I hadn't met the Hernandez brothers yet. I hadn't met uh, Kyle and and uh, the guys from Aggression yet. Well, I knew the guys from Aggression because they lived on Silver Strand. I knew Hickey and and those guys. We used to all surf together when everybody had long hair and just smoked dirt weed. Um. What was their age compared to you, Mark Hickey and Kyle? Well, Kyle's the same age, but Hickey and, and Henry and Big Bob are all, like, were all, well, Bob's alive. Mark and Henry were probably, shit, five or six years older. Okay. So if I was, like, 18, you know, they were these guys were already, you know, legally buying beer, and yeah. that was nice to have. But they worked at the corner store, sure. or Beams, Beams, back then, and... uh we never had any problem getting alcohol. Sure. Uh, that was easy. But I'd been living with my grandparents in Camarillo and was just surfing and skating. And I, I pulled a check out of the mail um, at my grandparents' house. And it was a pretty good amount. And I took it to the bank and cashed it. And I went to Hawaii. And nobody really knew where I was. And I just lived over there for a while. And I went to Australia and I went to South Africa and Japan and surfed. I just kind of toured around till the money ran out, and the punk scene was, you know, getting 
just getting more popular. More people in Oxnard, you know, Becca was into it, and and these guys, Art and Joey, on Pierpont. And at that point, Ventura and Oxnard really didn't get along. What year do you think but this is? This was 80. Okay. And it was before I joined Dr. No. So, so it's the only local band that had a release at that point, is the Rotter stuff? Yeah, the Rotters were out, and I think the next was MIA. We're on a comp. And was it, from, what was the name of that comp? Uh, huh? They're a Ventura. Yeah, the Ventura MIA. Something? The Tooth and Nail? No, no. It's called Steal This Record. Yeah, Steal This I Record. Know. I don't and know what language. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't Mystic. Um, they hadn't started ripping people off yet. Um, but you have plenty but, of time for that. <laughs> but uh, I, was in, I was in high school in Camarillo about 79, and I knew these guys that had a band. They played Yes covers. They were surfers. They were three brothers, and they had really long hair. And, you know, Volkswagen van, and they made their own surfboards, and they surfed all up here all the time up north of, above Ventura. And, you know, the punk scene was, was, was jumping off, and I said, you guys got to go see some fucking real music. This is Yes covers. Like, how do, you couldn't play Roundabout at a fucking house party? Like, this is... <laughs> So I took them to see Black Flag at the Starwood, and the next day they cut their hair, and we started playing. And we, we wrote this song called Body Count, and well, I wrote it, and we played it, and Aggression heard it. And I started hanging out more on my mom's, then I moved to my mom's on Coenga Street on Silver Strand. And Dr. No was looking for a singer, and my band was kind of dying what was your band called? It was called the Eddies. Okay. <laughs> it was already named that before I joined it. Yeah. And it was E-D-D-Y-S, okay. which is a weather pattern. A swirling eddy is a weather pattern that's... It's a very usually, informational show. Usually off the coast here of uh, Southern California in the Channel Islands, we get these coastal eddies and the wind is, you know, blow out the surf. So these guys were hippie surfers, and they named it that, which had nothing to do with me. That's a pretty sick name, though, and, like uh, the reasoning behind it. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, some people are like, oh, you were in the Eddies. You named a band after yourself. It's like, no, that was Butch Patrick. He had Eddie and the Munsters. Yeah. And, uh, that, you know, and it would get confused sometimes. It's like, oh, you're that kid from TV. Do you do the Munsters song? I'm like, no, that's somebody else. <laughs> but the Eddies played some house parties, and and the Oxnard and Ventura crew that were hanging out together at Art and Joey's and on Silver Strand attempted to come to one of the shows and they wouldn't let them in because the Camarillo crowd was afraid of the Oxnard punkers because they were real punk rockers. Sure. And so nobody could come in. And I guess everybody watched from outside. Big Bob wanted to beat up everybody and Henry. And I quit the band and I started hanging out at my mom's and Aggression lived next door and they were playing. And Dr. No had played uh, in Camarillo on a flatbed truck at the park. And then, you know, they had Ron Baird sing for him. They had Joey Pena sing for him. And then Rick Heller sang for him. And it didn't work out for some reason or another. And Rick had bad headaches from singing. He said, he tried to sound like Cal from Discharge too much. Well, Dr. No tried to sound too much like Cal, like Discharge in the beginning. That was a big influence. Um, so I was hanging out and, uh, somehow I ended up down at this guy, Robin Cartwright, the original drummer of Dr. No's house. And we went through a set and we played it a couple of times and they said, good, we got a gig in Santa Barbara. And we did a gig in Santa Barbara and I was in Dr. No and we just started playing shows. And 
I found yet again a group of people that really didn't give a fuck who I was or where I came from. Everybody, everybody knew, but it was, you know, in 80, 81 in, in, in Oxnard, it was, especially in Silverstrand, that was the end of the road. That was where everybody that didn't belong anywhere else lived. It was, you know, Filipino fishermen and CBs and drunks and surfers and people that were just out there because that was where you ended up if you weren't Mexican or a rich white guy on the north side. And I was kind of half of all of that, but really <laughs> didn't want to participate in any of it. Didn't want to be a gangbanger on Paula Street with my cousins, and I did not feel comfortable on the north side with the, you know, because I'd been living in Camarillo where I'd, I was kicked out of Oxnard High School freshman year, two weeks in for selling weed in the, in the bathroom. And I was told to either go to Frontier High School at the Camarillo Airport, which is where everybody that yeah. like, was on their way to prison went, or go to Camarillo High. And I went, hmm, rich white girls with BMWs and cocaine. Yeah. Easy choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I got into my cocaine phase. And, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol were always a part of doing all this shit. I mean, <laughs> one birthday of Rick Heller's, I brought over a bunch of Coke and drew a big Dr. No symbol in Coke for him. It was like two grams. And he like did the whole thing, just went, <laughs> you know, and then we drank beers and talked for 17 hours straight. So you start playing a Dr. No. Yep. And, and uh, do you remember the first time you recorded? Uh, yeah, we got, um, we got a call from Dick Clark. He was doing a show called Where Are They Now? And they wanted to know where I was because I wasn't doing TV anymore. It had been some years. And said, well, I'm in a punk band. And they said, okay, well, we want to use some of your music on it. And they said, well, we, we, we would need to record something. We don't have anything recorded. And so they gave us $400. And they said, okay, record a song. So we took the 400 bucks and went to this place in Ventura. What was it called? Goldmine Gold Studios in Ventura. And for 400 bucks, we recorded like 14 songs. Yeah. And I blew my throat out because we did, you know, everything in, in like four hours or something ridiculous. We just blasted through everything. And and uh, they used like three seconds of one of the songs. Yeah. And uh, I think I had green hair, like Becca and, and this girl Meg and some girl Kathy from down in Pasadena. They they got me and styled me. I wore Alyssa James boots and like they got this ridiculous leather jacket with spikes on it and shit. It was like, I didn't dress like that. I was like a little thrift store kid, but they made me look like some English punker. And I wore glasses and had zits. It was very fucking awkward, but nobody cared. You yeah. Know, you're, if you were into this scene and into this music, it was, you know, it wasn't a fashion show f for us up here. Sure. You know, even we'd go to gigs in LA and it was, you know, I mean, Kyle had a vinyl jacket, not a leather jacket. You know, and he didn't have engineer boots. He had these beetle boots. They <laughs> were fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we all looked a little different, even compared to the other punk rockers. Sure. And that was kind of cool because, you know, aggression started getting bigger and, and getting shows with BYO. And they would play with Youth Brigade. And, you know, they got some good shows. And we always thought that we, you know, we were the next in line. Because after us, I think Ill Repute formed, Stalag 13 formed. Boss Confession, Habeas Corpus, um, you know, other bands started popping up. Uh, but 
but basically when you know the the term nardcore which came from Ismail um I think as a joke we were the way I remember the story is we were either listening to Nazi Punk's Fuck Off or DOA's Hardcore 81 album and I remember Ismail this is my memory saying well if this is hardcore we're nardcore and everyone laughed but Tony Cortez went home and drew up something and showed it to people and it was like, oh, well, then now we have an identity. Now we have a scene. And I had this beat up orange van and I would drive everybody down to gigs at like Godzilla's and stuff and Bob and Henry and, and Mark and this guy Casey French, they were bouncers down there. So we all would get in free and we would just sit in the, in the across the street on the railroad tracks in the abandoned uh, boxcars and just get all fucked up and then go in and see these shows and we never really got hassled, you know. Punk rock was really violent, and there were the lads and the FFF guys, and but that stuff's a, a yeah. little bit later of being super gnarly, right? Was no, it already? Gnarly? It was, it was I already. Mean, gnarly I remember. And... I remember John Macias of Circle One chasing Mike Mirror around in circles at, at Godzilla's because it was a big, huge, giant warehouse with a lot of different rooms. And no, the the punk gangs were already there. In what year? Talking eighty two, eighty into eighty one. Yeah, Godzilla's didn't really. last that long. But you're able to stay out of it. I talked to Tony. He said it was easy to navigate away from it. Yeah, because we were from Oxnard. We had Mark, Bob, and Henry from Aggression, who were all big, big guys. Um, you know, I mean, we would open for TSOL or Dead Kennedys or or you know, whatever bands shows that we could get on. Because I met Gary Tovar of Golden Voice up in Santa Barbara early on, and he asked me like, "Hey, are you into are you into punk rock? Do you any local bands?" Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they all rehearse at either my mom's house or next door, yeah. Aggression's house. So Aggression got the first show in 81 uh, in Santa Barbara with TSOL. And so we were pretty in there with, with Tovar. And then Dr. No got to open for Dead Kennedys and for Fear. And so we started moving up a little bit. And then Circle One gave us a show in L.A. We made like our L.A. debut. And um, Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez of Love and Rockets, comic book not the band fame who's also Ismail's brother who's the bass player of Dr. No um, they drew all the flyers for us yeah and they did a takeoff on a courtship of Eddie's father photo about our first LA show which was kind of weird because I mean they he Jaime thought it was funny I thought it was kind of I don't know self-indulgent but you know you're trying to move past that also Definitely finding my own identity outside of being a kid actor and, you know, being a now young adult, you know, 18, 19 years old and wanting to stay as far away from that as possible because, I mean, I knew, I knew people in the punk scene that were like had famous parents that would kind of get shit. It's like if you were rich or if you were, you know, lived in a nice part of town, you were looked down on and, you know, it was for a bunch of open minded kids, it was pretty judgmental and pretty closed minded as well. Sure. You know, but but a lot of the a lot of the Beverly Hills punks, you know, they had some great bands. You know, Sin Thirty Four were all from Beverly Hills or Santa Monica or wherever. At least a couple of them had parents that were really well up. But Victoria Sellers, Peter Sellers, and Britt Eklund's daughter was a big scenester girl, and she would show up at gigs and girls would just fucking punch her. Jesus, the girls were gnarly. I bet Meg and Becca were a fucking force. They were fucking scary. If <laughs> Becca introduced me to Meg, I ended up marrying Meg, who then went on to marry Ismail's brother, Jaime. <laughs> so, we keep it close. 
we're family here in, in, in hardcore. So it was, it was just kind of weird beginnings. And, you know, I was doing a lot of drugs and drinking a lot. So these memories are <laughs> a bit hazy. I, I think you're, you're doing a great job of tying it all together. So you do this recording, but it doesn't come out right away. No, the the ABC used a little blurb of the song. And then I don't know how we got involved with Mystic. They were putting out anybody. So we were anybody. <laughs> we were nobody. And we went down to, oh, no, we were asked to be on the first, was it We Got Power? Yeah. We were we were asked to be on We Got Power, which you had to have an under 40-second song. Okay. We so had a song called, bands. we had, yeah, 40 bands, 40 songs, under 40 seconds. We had a song called Savior that was like 39 seconds as yeah. recorded. So we had a master of it. And we took it down. That's how we got involved with Mystic, because they were putting it out. But We Got Power was a zine that was put out by Jordan Schwartz and uh, Dave Markey of Sin 34. Yeah, I mean, they know what they're doing, because that, that comp is... Compilation is sick, but that one is... It's like above and beyond the other Mystic comps. You can tell that someone curated it. It was, and, and I mean, like Daigle Abortions, who nobody had ever really heard of yet, um, they were produced amazingly well. There were some songs on there that were, you know, a lot of us had this, you know, where we recorded at Goldmine, we kind of self-produced it. It wasn't really well done. It sounded better than a lot of them, but compared to, like, Dayglows, it was mud. Dayglows, <laughs> it was fucking polished, and they were good. Savior gets used a fair amount. And it's, it's it sounds it's frustrating to me because it sounds like that song goes right into that Cold War song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's such a fucking dick tease every time you hear a savior <laughs> and it cuts off. Like, right when you go, do do da do do da do do da It's like you're ready for like, da 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 Like, I love when your scene comes in, you know? And it's like, fuck, savior's a great song, but it's like, cut it's it, so cut short. It. It's, it's gotta be both. It's so short. I like both together. And Cold War was kind of the the, the first thing that I started picking apart when, when Kyle and I weren't agreeing on things were the lyrics, mm-hmm. especially to that song. Deathly darkness looming with death is an actual lyric from that song that he wrote and you had to sing. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I wrote I wrote songs like about being vegetarian and just to piss him off. Mm-hmm. Really, I, he would say, "Hey, we have a new song. It's, it's it goes like this, and here are the words." I'm, I'm not singing that, <laughs> and then I would sing what I wanted to. Sure, and nobody could understand it half the time, anyways. But I just kind of did what I wanted to do and. Colin and I never really saw eye to eye. Um, I mean, we got along well enough, and there were there was inner turmoil with the band. Rick Heller and my sister were well. Rick really wanted to date my sister, and my sister was dating Henry of Aggression. And at almost every weekend party, Henry would have to go find Rick and beat him up, and that just made it kind of difficult to be in a band with the guy who <laughs> got beat up by my sister's boyfriend on a weekly basis for trying to sleep with her, and she was like fifteen. Jesus. Rick was not well. Henry was like twenty-seven or something. Yeah. And they were living together, so the hippie upbringing, and uh, you know, one less mouth to feed. I guess it was. It, there were some lean times over there on on Coinga on, on Silver Strand, and everybody else's. You know, parents were. I don't know. There were broken homes, and you know, everybody just kind of banded together because we're all we had you know we, 
weren't jocks. We weren't hippies. We weren't, I mean, a lot of us skated. Some of us surfed, but that wasn't the main identity. It was the music really bonded everybody. But Art and Joey's house on Pierpont in Ventura was where some of the Ventura guys would come by and see these Oxnard guys in there. And there would be a little vibe in the air, like, because there was a surf war. Sure. About, you know, Oxnard and Ventura did not get along. But Art and Joey's was like the DMZ. You know, you just did not fuck with anybody there. And it gave us the ability to kind of venture outside of, you know, like on Silver Strand, there's a traffic light that leads to like the rest of the world. Sure. Because there's only one road in and one road out. And going past the traffic light was kind of, you know, that was venturing out into the unknown. And we were able to, you know, it's it's like five miles to Pierpont, but it, it might as well have been, you know, forever because you got up into Pierpont and you didn't know if you were going to run into Epi or Poodle or or some of the crazier older guys up there that just wanted to beat up anybody that wasn't from Ventura because you were going to surf the dredge. You know, but we lived on Silver Strand. It's like, well, you weren't going to come and surf the jetty or the bowl. But punk rock kind of neutralized that. And there really wasn't a Ventura band. There was MIA. But weren't weren't half those guys from Oxnard anyways? No, they were all from Ventura. Oh yeah, they were. They they called themselves the Spiderheads. They like grew their hair out and spiked it up, and they were like they did hard drugs, harder drugs than we did. It's a cool click name though, the Spiderheads. Yeah, kind of appreciate it now. Oh, they were fucking awesome. <laughs> they were they they were on a, a comp before anybody else. Yeah, they were on that. They, they had a song "Last Day at the Races." You listen to it now, and it holds up. It's a fucking great song. That's cool. You know, and and those guys. Who was it? Bruton. Joe Eddie, who else was in that band? Bob Porter, Becca's, uh, Bob Porter's a doctor now, so is Becca. We got doctors in hardcore. <laughs> it's fucking weird. So you started to have a falling out with Kyle. Yeah, it was turning it a little, I mean, there was the common kind of unspoken thing about the the, the different bands of like the the first four from Oxnard, like Aggression, they were the bigger, older guys who were more established and they were just big. So they kind of commanded, like they got the first of everything or did everything first and everybody else followed. And they were like the bluesy kind of based rock and roll. Like they were like an early, you know, they called it speed rock or skate rock or, but really Henry was a blues guitar player who just played faster. Dr. No was metal-tinged, I think was <laughs> something that was used to describe us at one point. And, you know, we had the Black Sabbath uh, influence in Motorhead and, and Discharge, so we were a bit more of that type of feeling. Ill Repute were probably like the Beach Boys, sped up, because they were the clean-cut American kids. You know, and, and Stalag 13 was the straight-edge, you know, kind of minor threatish band. So everybody pretty much stood alone. You know, sure. it was pretty individual. There was no Nardcore sound because everybody recorded differently and had different influences. You know, and everybody kind of found the other people that they were had a common interest in. It's like, I was, yeah, I liked Minor Threat, but I didn't want to do songs like them. I preferred the Black Sabbath Discharge kind of Black Flag stuff that influenced early Dr. No. And then... Probably 82, we'd, we'd played in L.A. with Circle One. We'd, we'd done 
some shows out of town with fear and aggression and we had done that TV show and it, it, it boosted us a little bit further up the ladder, but ill repute always, you know, always killed it. So it was kind of aggression were the top dogs and us and ill repute were kind of fighting it out for a second and Stalag slowly crawled right up, right up against us too. And, you know, my little brother was in that band. So it was kind of a, a brotherly competition too, which actually happened in our European tour because you know, I'm older. My band was first. We should headline, and <laughs> you guys play more covers. And <laughs> yeah. I ended up storming away from the, the whole tour bat, uh, van. But that's much later for like eight hours. This is like two years ago. Yeah, <laughs> <in Europe. laughs> yeah. 2017. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that animosity kind of always was there, you know. And then I have another brother, Zorba, who never really played any punk rock. He's a he was in ska and reggae and oh, shout out Scott Eddies. They've been going forever and they're always They there. have been. They have been, but what's this got to do with ska? <laughs> See, it's a tie with your brother and your family. Shout out Zorba. Fuck it. I love my brother. I tolerated the band. Um wasn't wasn't my thing. You know, ska for me was specials and madness and you know, ska bands. Not save Ferris and no doubt. And okay, I'll piss somebody off. That's okay. I no, kind of I have a reputation of pissing a few people <laughs> off, with, especially on Facebook or back in the my MySpace days. Man, I had some epic wars with people about shit. Well, let, let's get to you exiting, Doctor No. Well, it was '83. I'd probably been in the band like a year and a half, and Kyle was writing the next batch of songs, and I just kept. I mean, he was very well educated, you know, had a, had a very good command of the English language, really loved enunciation. And I was just content to keep, you know, doing discharge type stuff and playing faster. And Kyle was a great fucking guitar player and a great songwriter. And he crafted some stuff that was awesome. I just didn't feel it was a fit for me. Yeah. And. We had arguments over different songs and titles and imagery, and it just wasn't working out. And then the whole thing with Rick and my sister, you know, never had a beef with these smile, ever. That's why I'm probably still sitting here with him right now. Am I lying? Are you going to fact check me? <laughs> Did we have a beef about anything? Well, right now, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> there will be notes at the end of this. <laughs> Disclaimers and asterisks. Um, so... I had met this girl through through our friend Becca. She lived in L.A. She was like this crazy punker chick down there. And and, and we should say and, that Becca's a girl from another state of mind. Everyone will know her from that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Becca Porter was, uh, was a force. And she knew all the Hollywood punkers. And she was like into oi and skinhead music before anybody knew what it was. And she had bleached jeans. And the first time she came to my grandparents' house, my Grandma looked outside and she said, why, why don't you invite that boy in? <laughs> That's a girl. But Becca had a shaved head. So um, I just kind of went, you know what? I'm moving to L.A. with this girl and I'm not going to be in Dr. No anymore. And I basically just, I remember I went to, I broke up with the band. I quit at uh, Casa de la Raza. There was a gig going on. And I walked in and Rick and, Rick became our drummer after Robin 
Robin couldn't play something. We did a house party, and Rick sat in, and it was just like, oh, fuck, this guy's a monster. And Robin was not. You know, Robin was a great guy, but he wasn't Rick in, at the drum kit. So Rick became our drummer. And I walked in, and those two guys were talking about something, and uh, it, it got brought up again how I was disagreeing with everything. And there was not an argument. It was just, you know what, if, if, this, if we can't agree on a direction, then I'm... I'm just going to stop. Sure. Thinking I'm just going to move to L.A. and I'm going to start a band and, you know, that'll be that. Well, that wasn't the case. I just moved to L.A. and did a bunch of drugs. <laughs> and I never really started a band until my ex-wife, uh, Mag, we listened to a lot of Susie and the Banshees and the Slits and stuff, and I started some tribal band called Ring of Ouch. Which would have been what year? Um, I, it was the year I turned 21, so 83. Okay. 83 on my birthday, I, I moved to Pasadena. Well, that's still pretty early. That's not that long of a break. No, but then a ring of action didn't come about till like 84. And then just be, just be, Meg and I were married for maybe a year. I don't know. It was this trunk rock, punk rock, drug fueled miss. <laughs> what's, what's this communication? What's the SVDB band? Because you, you have that yeah. friendly local police song. That's a fucking ripper. Yeah. Same Vitus dance band. They were friends from Pasadena that my ex-wife knew and they were on Mystic and Mystic was looking around for bands to be on the Copulation EP and they asked SBB to do it and one of the brothers the Macaulay's brothers who sang for SVDB didn't want to sing and I think I was living next door to one of them and they asked me if I'd do it and there was a guy Darren Price who played drums on that he was in Tourist and it just, we went into the studio one day and we recorded it. And everybody was doing an a anti-cop song. And I thought it'd be funny if I did a song about how your friendly local police were so helpful and so nice. And it was totally tongue-in-cheek. But I know, that song is so catchy and The good. song was oh, fuck amazing. Yeah. The music was so good. and You still feel like that too, right? When you listen to it, you're like, that song is fucking with shit. I'm pretty damn proud of that song. Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing that was ever recorded with with me and Dr. No was a, a version of um, What to Do. Okay. One of my favorite songs. That we, I still love doing it today. But I, I can listen to it now and honestly say that it stands up as one of the hardest, fastest, most just searing fucking punk rock songs I've ever heard recorded. Yeah. Whether I'm singing on it or not, it's, it's our version of what Discharge would have done had they written the song. And... And I fucking love Discharge. Yeah. And it's, uh, Kyle's playing on it. Eastmile's playing on it. Rick's drumming. I mean, it just, it, it came together. That was like our, our peak of, of power, of, of being a, a really strong, strong fucking band. And, you know, it might sound a little egotistical, but when we're on, even, even today, we smoke some motherfuckers, man. We, we, I love this band. I love playing music with these guys, and now we're you know it's me, Fred, and and Larry, and and Ismail, and you know we we still love these songs, we still love doing it, and we recorded a song with a couple of other guys. Uh, we recorded a whole album like ten, eleven years ago, and God, some of the songs off of that are just. I've gotten to play with some amazing musicians. You know, there's some good stuff on those those two thousand records. Yeah, you do yeah. a lot. Yeah, we can, we can jump into some of it if you want. You have, we've uh, 
we've recorded some stuff, and and I love doing that shit because the guys I get to play with are you know my good friends. I've, I've known Eastmo since nineteen eighty. Yeah, you know it's two thousand nineteen. So you, you moved to LA and you don't do bands until when? Are you? Let's talk about that band. The well, I did. Band you did. I did this little kind of tribal funky weird band called Ring of Ouch that I kept telling Sean Stern that I had this band and he kept laughing. He's like, I'm never going to book you guys. <laughs> I, don't, I don't book shit like that. Did you record or anything? Nah, it was just a, a rehearsal band. So what's um, the band you do after that? And then I joined SVDB okay. for a recording. Because you, you record on that song, but they do a couple more songs that you don't sing on. Right. I just was asked to sing one song. Yeah. Because the... Well, your song the, wins. One of the brothers didn't want to sing. <laughs> And I, I, they just asked me to do it, and I did it, and it was, you know, a brief, yeah, probably two hours, and I was done. Yeah, and it was fun, and I'm glad that it got recorded and it got out there because it got some, you know, it got attention. It was, it was a fucking great song. But you know, I'm not a guitar player, bass player, drummer. I'm not a musician. I, I, I will sing songs. A lot of stuff that I've done has been written by other people. I've written a lot of my own stuff. Eastmont's written a lot of the lyrics that I've sang. Um, you know, it's it's just the love of doing it. It's I don't care who wrote it, what you know. If you if you like doing it, you like doing it. And I don't think it rem- <clears throat> just because you didn't write it doesn't remove the passion. I wrote no. all the In Control lyrics. And Ryan sang them all. So, and Ryan was not dispa- dispassionate. Right. Oh fuck no, Ryan! <laughs> you know, and so I thought I was crazy. The first In Control show I saw, <laughs> holy shit! Yeah, I got to step man. it up because this fucking kid is making me look like an old man, <laughs> and he still does. And then he goes out and he rides fucking twenty foot oxenart on his single fin longboard with no leash. I mean, that's <laughs> a fucking monster. He's he hasn't been scared of big waves since I was a kid. You know, I, I mean, don't I think remember, anything scares Ryan. No, he's in seventh grade, and I see him in super stormy conditions, like only dude out. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty psycho. Well, it's like when we used to play shows at Ojai, you know, and the crowd had all pressed forward, and you guys hadn't even played a note yet, and he's diving into the stage, and people would move, and he'd hit the floor, and he'd eat shit so fucking hard, like yeah, like skating in an empty pool with no pads and just jumping in the deep end. Yeah. That was Ryan. Yeah, I know. Ryan just did it. I remember one time we played Vancouver, and the played this bar, and there was no one there, and the stage was, it was like comically high. Cobalt. Like, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember. It's so high. And I was like, dude, this show's going to suck tonight, but you have to do a David Lee Roth off that thing. <laughs> because it's so high and it's so perfect. And he did, you know? Oh, yeah. And it was sick. And it was like, well, now we got a great memory from the show. Ryan did a David Lee Roth off the fucking eight-foot stage. Yeah, and he, and he, he rarely hurt himself. No. He would bleed, but you know, bleed. he didn't break anything. Well, we, we did a run for a while when he cut himself, like on purpose. And that was for that he'd pretend he hit like he'd like headbutt the symbol and then he'd cut himself like a pro wrestler right on the hairline mm-hmm. you know wild man for some reason I smack myself in the forehead with the microphone and uh, bleed a lot yeah. but it's just kind of in the heat of the moment it's not like I plan on you know doing a GG and getting bloody every show but yeah but you're first generation We're I, just usually trying to end recreate bloody, I usually end up bloody every show <laughs> We're just the imposters that came later. We're no, trying to recreate got, it. Dude, I mean, if it wasn't for, like, the 90s version of, of uh, Ill Repute and uh, Burning Dog, and then you guys and Missing 23rd, the hardcore scene would have died off. I mean, you guys kept it going. 
And then when we came back in 98, you know, me and Ismail and, and a couple of guys, it was, you know, thankfully there was still something there. Sure. Because you guys fucking were, were flying that flag hard. You know, it's like when I first heard, I'm like, somebody named a band after Blake's album? That's interesting. And then I saw you guys playing and I just went, oh, fuck, we got to play with these guys. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to, you know, make us step it up. Like you guys really kind of lit the fire under my ass to bring back a fucking set that was as as hard as we could fucking play. Sure. You know, I wanted to... We have a motorcycle in nearby. Um, it's, we're we're uh, we are, competing yeah. with the Larry episode. Yeah. These are the these are the Ventura the Ventura Avenue background or backyard series. Yeah, it's it's, it's nice that we're on the on the avenue now. Yeah, it's like it reminds me of the old Oxnard days. <laughs> this is where everybody's going that just doesn't and can't and shouldn't live anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so so what band do you do after SVDB? Um, let me see. Did you take a nice break? Do you? I took a break because I was really fucked up. Are you, are you working? You're just chilling. I was working. I got into like being an art uh, assistant on music videos. That's when you start your real career, though. Yeah, I guess I started doing adult things. Um, in my thirties or twenties, somewhere around there. Okay. Because it just never. You know, I was an artist. I was an actor. It's like when yeah. I never wanted to be remembered as an actor or called an actor, but if you know, my wife would say, well, "Are you going to get a job?" It's like, I, what if the phone rings and I have an audition? Yeah. So I milked that for a long time. <laughs> and well, maybe we'll get the band back together and go on tour. And she just laughed. Yeah. But I got sober in '96. Um, I'd been in a couple of bands with my my cousin. One of them was. Uh, the Brandon Cruz band. Yeah. And that came out of the ashes of uh, Twister Naked, which was his band. And did Twister Naked do a record? I don't know if they ever put anything out. I didn't see it on Discogs. may have been on a comp or something, but Twister Naked I think it was just like one comp song. They were disturbingly (laughs) fucked up. (laughs) I mean, we used to drink... I mean, this was before Four Loco and, and shit like that, or before energy drinks, but there was this stuff called Crazy Horse that was like this tangerine flavored... Oh, yeah malt something yeah that came in big bottles <laughs> we used yeah. to drink that shit and shoot heroin and speed and <laughs> smoke crack and then go to the coconut teaser you know and this is like late 80s yeah early 90s and um you know bands then i, w- I was going out a lot were you, you going know. to fenders uh, that time? i went to some shows at fenders i saw dr no a few times i saw him there with discharge where everyone wanted to kill Discharge because they were hair metal. Um, yeah, I would go and I was I would still go and support you know Ismail whenever I could. Um, I did a lot of traveling. I moved out of the mic. I did a lot of traveling too um, before I got married for the second time. I got married in um, ninety something four or six okay. something like that ninety four because I got sober in ninety six. So between. Like the mid '80s and the early '90s, I was kind of in the the music video scene, working with with a bunch of old punk rockers. Because I went to, I, w- I would go drink at this bar where Hetson would hang out. I would see him all the time, and 
you know, it's just just old Hollywood punkers that I knew from the early eighties, you know, in the early nineties and the mid nineties. They're still around. You know, Hetson was still in Bad Religion, and there were there were still shows. What is your favorite Bad Religion record? The first one. Yeah. I think everybody's first album is good. Everybody's second album sucks. And then perhaps they did something good third or fourth time. And then they just got to do that formula of, well, that worked, so let's keep doing it. But mostly, in my opinion, everybody's first album is just the most amazing thing because it was pretty much an experiment. Sure. And they came up with stuff that, you know, I think even even the stuff that we did later with Dr. No, we had more time to think about it, more thought was put into it. And it's like, we didn't want to make mistakes or we didn't want to touch on certain subjects or we just, we thought too much instead of just doing it. And in between like 79 and 81, the bands that came out and put out their first records, like you listen to the first China White, Listen to the first Bad Religion, the first, uh, you know, and even further back, like like Nervous Breakdown EP. Like sure. I don't care if it's EP, LP, whatever. Just the first recordings of just about every band stand out to me as these were experimental. These were experiments that went right well, for the can, most part. Because it could have been that whoever is the catalyst behind the band, they had those ideas that they've been working over in their head for years and years. It's why there's so often a sophomore slump. Right, it's like your first record could be like you've been hashing out in your head for your whole lifetime, you know. Now second record, you got two years to turn it around. It's like good fucking luck. Yeah, you know. And now you have different pressures. You're busier. You got more opinions. You got more egos and so forth. And the second record is much harder. I'm glad we existed before the internet. That's well, for sure. Thank God. I'm glad we existed in control at least before high speed internet. I, yeah. <laughs> I think I got I think I got high speed internet in oh six. We were broken up by oh oh four. But I am glad we I'm glad we got to tour without GPS because that's an adventure. But I am glad that at least MapQuest was out. So we would yeah. plan like the month before tour and go club here to club here and have like our MapQuest directions at least. Yeah. yeah. You know? That was nice because our some of our shows, even just like to go play out of town, it's like, where are we going? Mm-hmm. And you had a phone number and an address, and we always found it. Well, the early MapQuest shit was fucked, too. Like, we went to play this show up in Tachapi, and the MapQuest, like, someone didn't look at it closely enough and just realized it dropped us off in city center. Like, MapQuest can get you to Tachapi, but we're not mapping out Tachapi. Yeah. So it's like, oh, here we are at the Walmart, you know? And, like, we got a a phone number, you know? Yeah, and then they would, you know, kind of flag you in. Yeah. You know, like, land here. Yeah, come this way. Why not? No turn. No, no. There's a McDonald's, and then there's a Seven Eleven, and you would you would find it. I know. Well, people trip out now. Like when I give directions to my my house, and it's so detailed, and they're like, "I've never, I've never had someone give me this detailed instructions to get to someone's house." You know, it's like, well, I come from a life of getting bad directions, where it's like <laughs> turn right at the big tree, you know, and it's like. Well, I don't know what you consider a big tree. Like, is that a big tree or is that a medium-sized tree? Like, should I keep going or do I turn there? I mean, I, I lived in Hawaii for a long time, and, and I remember telling people, yeah, uh, you go down the road and then uh, at the red truck, take left, and hopefully that guy was still home. <laughs> right. But that's how I knew how to get to these because you couldn't pronounce half the fucking names. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, I live in the house by the, by the you know, the, the red dirt and the, and, the, and the green bush. 
Like that's every fucking house in Hawaii. How is your pigeon? Uh, it's okay if I'm around Howleys. Okay. I really would not speak it around Hawaiians because that's, <laughs> that's a sure way to get slapped. Yeah. And uh, I learned that the first time I spent some time in Hawaii. I got really drunk at a surf event. And I walked up to somebody and I went, hey, brah, what a bathroom. And boom, I just got fucking just <laughs> knocked on my ass by this big Hawaiian guy. And then he picked me up and he goes, Holly, don't speak pigeon. <laughs> like, it's like, all right. And I wanted to, you know, like bra and throw him a shotgun. And I just went, okay, sir. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> like as white as I could. Yeah. But it's, it's easy to lapse into that, you know, because I mean, I live in Copenhagen now. And I'm attempting to learn the language because sure. it's. I think it's respectful if you are in another place and you take part in their culture. I do um, the same. I, I worked in Tijuana for a year uh, running a call center, and, and I took a serious stab at learning the language. And I'm okay. But you should. It's a, it's a sign of respect. If you don't, especially because down there there's so much expat culture. Yeah. Of people that want to move there because it's a little cheaper, and then they section themselves off and, and don't associate with anyone. It's like... You're a fucking cocksucker. Yeah, I don't know no. any Americans in Copenhagen, really. I hang out with all the Danish old squatter punks who've like fought the cops in 1984 with <laughs> yeah. rocks and bottles for eight days because they were closing a squat down. You know, these guys are <laughs> fucking hardcore and they're political and they're like all Antifa and they're all, you know, the, the Nazis don't even fuck with the Copenhagen scene anymore. They stay in Sweden or Germany or wherever the fuck they're from. But Copenhagen is one of the warmest, most welcoming, amazing places in the punk rock scene is thriving there. It's it's a bit disjointed. Like, people won't go really see a hardcore band because they want to see a, a punk and roll band. And, but they've got their audiences, and the shows are small for the most part, unless big touring bands come, and then everybody will go see. Like, No Effects comes, everybody goes to see No Effects, but... You know, so what what do you consider small and what do you consider large? Like a, a small show is 50 kids and a, yeah. a large show is no effects draws, what, a few thousand? Uh, the last time they played Copenhagen, was I was on tour with them. They, it was 1,500 people, and that was max capacity for the place. They could have yeah. played a bigger place. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're a huge fucking band. Of course. It's it's ridiculous how fucking big they are. But, you know, they... Well, of, linoleum was that good. Uh, Wait till you hear the new album. They kind of redo Linoleum, which Mike said, hey, you can always improve on stuff. Some people are going to hate it, but I think that's what Mike, you know, what, what drives Mike to do what he does. Is well, he can do whatever he wants. He enjoys now. pissing people. Yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah. Was, so before we jump into the 2000s, you've always been notorious for, uh, like, how, what would the word be with you and Doug Moody? You're You're the most outspoken... <laughs> for how for how uh, you feel that mystic treated people and and other people have have wavered i've seen tony go from you know when we go on tour he'd give us a big box of records and that's all we needed um to feeling that he got ripped off to you know coming in and out but you've always been very consistent with thinking he took advantage of people well what what mystic did with my brother's band when he signed a contract with them my brother was like 14 years old and, uh, you know, being fed beers and doing coke in there. And he signed a contract. And I was like, that's illegal. That contract is illegal. We took, we took the master that had Savior on it, gave it to him to do the pull that song off of to be on the, the comp. And then 
he gave the master back to Kyle, and for some reason we wanted to use another song on something else, and we spooled up the master, and Moody had given him a blank. After I quit the band, um, because I never was on a full-length release with Dr. No until much later, um, he released in, I think it was 86. Uh, 86 is the first one. Dr. No, the original group. Featuring Brandon Cruz, produced by Brandon and Dick Clark at ABC Studios, and that was a total fucking lie. And he took that entire master and put it out. Yeah, you know, years after I quit the band. So the best of Doctor No in '86, and then Doctor No original group '87. Yeah, so it confused people because people were like, "Oh, Doctor No's Kyle was the singer, and then this other guy came in, and he was the second singer." It's like, no, actually, I was the fourth singer, and then there was a guy named Mark, and then Kyle. And then me, and then Kyle, and now me, and probably Kyle again, and <laughs> it just yeah. keeps going. So and I'm, I'm like the fourth, the sixth, and the ninth singer of Doctor <laughs> No, or, or well, something. But well, we, yeah, we're weird. called No now because sure there was a some court thing, some something filed, and we aren't allowed to be called Doctor No. So well, that thing just happened with the Chromags too. You read about that? Yeah, I saw the video of Harley just staring into the camera like, ha, ha, ha. It's like, well, where was Paris Mayhew in all this? Because Paris wrote all of that shit. So Paris is very outspoken about Harley. And that's him and John Joseph's thing. And I got no beef with any of those guys. Well, I, no, I like vo- I like both versions. So I like the idea of of knowing what you're going to see. I like both versions of Dr. No. I mean, Kyle's... I like both fucking, versions of Dr. No Kyle's as well. Kyle's a fucking badass guitar player. It's just... It's, I don't exactly agree with some of the stuff, the way it's done, or the... I don't know. It's 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 a complicated issue. And I've, I've been quoted and, and spoken this very publicly that I would reunite with Kyle and do a Dr. No set anytime. Absolutely anytime. I don't hold that personal... Uh, Whatever it is he has against me, that's his business. I'm not going to try and figure it out. I'm just going to always keep it open that if we all ever want to get on stage together, I'm not going to say no. Yeah, and and also, you get older and things soften, and and people should live a, try to live a positive, happy life, right? Like, who wants to have animosity? Like uh, Some people. <laughs> I, I, man, I, I it's hope still going I, on. I, I've I've turned the corner on being angry over little things, you know. Like, you know, it just I don't know. I think about the way I used to act on just getting annoyed and and upset and yelling at people and this and that, and I'm not like that anymore. Yeah, I've I've seen bands come and go and get back <laughs> together and break up and go back and uh, you know one guy who was you know the drummer on the third album is now touring under that name and it's. You know what? If the music is being played, like I went through a lot of shit for joining Dead Kennedys. Yeah, and it punk rock wasn't supposed to be rock stars, you know. But uh, who was it? Uh, Rudimentary Peni? Did they talk shit about Joe Strummer? Yeah, they did. And uh, Joe was, you know, some, certain people were exalted and put on these pedestals, and you know, Jello was kind of one of them. And he was iconic, and he was the voice of, of a very, very influential band. And But I never bought into that whole rock star being part of punk rock. And when they asked me to do it, I thought, fuck yeah, this would be fun. And if those guys want to play those songs, why not? Yeah, it's the original lineup. 
uh, just minus him, and I never wanted to be Jello. And they never lied and said it was Jello. No, the promoters did, but the yeah. band didn't. So there were some people that went and thought they were going to see Jello. Yeah, because the promoters would put pictures of Jello. Oh Jesus! And that pissed him off. But I found out later that he was still getting paid a performance royalty, and he was getting a cut of the merch. I saw the cash checks. Jesus! So he was talking shit on the internet so badly he he printed my home address after a death threat from some kid in Ohio and the feds came to my house to ask if I wanted to press charges. So thanks Biafra. Now I have a federal file with the fucking FBI. And, and after I quit the band, um, in 2003, he called me up. He goes, what happened? What happened? Was it Ray? Was it, you know, he, he wanted to know the whole details and of course it was Ray. Um, but I wanted to tour more and I wanted to do, original music and they wanted to play the same 17 songs that they still play now 17 years later so that's up to them you know yeah but you so you do write original music in the 2000s and actually dr no is kind of more prolific with writing songs then or it's just as much as the 80s right three lps in the 2000s and three lps in the 80s yeah so you wrote I mean, a lot of stuff we well you know Eastmo wrote a lot of the material i would kind of I don't, I'm not a guitar player. I can I can I can do like three bar chords and kind of say it should sound like this. So I've written some stuff, but you can sing a riff. I can sing it, and I you know I, and I can write some lyrics and I can say uh, I want it to sound like this. But really, the whole band is is a part of the songwriting process. So I've uh, we made it a point the last album that we did to say all songs written by Doctor No, because everybody everybody was a part of it. Everybody played it. And I think it's only fair to, you know, do it like that. Even though maybe Rick, the drummer who was on our last album, didn't write anything, he had to learn the drum parts. He well, that's to, what I was talking about with Ishmael. Was like, even if you're not writing the riff, you're still there as a the initial critic, right? So you can say, I like that. I don't like that. And inevitably, with weeding out a bunch of stuff you don't like, you've crafted a song that you approve of, and you're putting your stamp on it. Right, so it is your song. Yeah, I mean, you know, Eastwell wrote the 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 lyrics and the the music to "Die Hippie Die," one of my favorite like newer Doctor No songs, and you know, we would play that, and I fucking loved that song. But some people didn't get the humor in the song, and it pissed some people off, which is which is great. I mean, if you're gonna play bland music that nobody gets a reaction over, then you know. I don't know, and also if you're if you're upset about an anti-hippie song in the 2000s, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jesus, you know, you know, but I, the ship I, has sailed. I, you know, we we kept some of the themes and and the original ideals of, of Doctor No. You know, the 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 album was called Killing for God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which is taken from one of the songs that Kyle wrote. Um, our imagery has not changed. Very much the original artwork is still the original artwork. You know, it's very iconic. And when we toured as No in Europe the first time, we had shirts that said No and nobody bought them because mm. they wanted it to say Doctor No. It's like, well, no, we're, we're called No. And then we played Rebellion Fest and I said, fuck it, we're just going to call it Doctor No. So they project this thing on the back of the stage and we put up the big Doctor No thing and we got a good response. We had a great set. And, I think uh, that's fair. I think that. If you advertise yourself that you're going to see no, that's fair to like the kids and the ticket buyers, right? But if they go to the show 
people want to buy a Dr. No shirt. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with them wanting it or you selling it. No, what, what bugs me is the, the way Doug Moody puts Mystic Records on every Dr. No release now on top of Jaime's art. So you, you don't... You know, you don't take a crayon and fucking scribble on the Mona Lisa and say that it's a a new release. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, that's 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 true. You don't fuck with stuff like that, and and Mystic has been doing that for a long time. And yeah, when we would go out and tour, I think uh, two thousand three, we toured with Ori uh, Pute and Stalag, went up to Vancouver and back, and you know, I went to the guy Bill Sounds of California. And kind of more demanded than asked for CDs. And I was given like 20 Dr. No CDs and 20 No Effect CDs and 20 Scared Straight CDs. (laughs) Just expected to, you know, go out and like, you know, flood the market with all of this stuff that they couldn't sell. Um, So, yeah, they did kind of forcibly support it because I would, I hate lawyers and I don't think lawyers belong in, in, you know, why spend twenty grand to to get two hundred? It's you know it's just it's stupid. It's not you know it's I hate saying it's not punk rock because that's just overused and watered down. But it's just not it's not part of the ethos of of who we are or, or what we do to be you know that American greed thing. Yeah, it's not it's not stand is, up. Is fucking horrible. It's like okay, this label's ripping you off. Name one label that did that doesn't do that. You know, not there's there's probably not one label that hasn't done something either by mistake or on purpose to sure. anybody, and it's it's a business, and it's you know all these you know anti corporate and anarchist bands they sell their merch. It's capitalism. Yeah. It's you know it's kind of a double standard, but it is what it is, and it does cost money to tour. It does cost money to rehearse. You know the equipment's not cheap. You know, and you ask for a certain amount of money. You know, there's some bands that won't play for under a certain amount, and and I don't blame them because it's you know we're older now. We got jobs, we got kids, we got wives, we got whatever it is that we got. Um, you know, to get the time off work, and it's like when we went to Europe for the first time. You know, we should have gone over there a long time ago, but you know it didn't work out. And then when it did, we went with Stalag and. They took care of us over there. It was fucking great. You know, we got paid way more than we would in the States. And they give you food, and they give you beer, and they give you water, and they give you a place to stay, and all the sound equipment is top-notch, even in like little dingy squats, little horrible places that look like shit, but they fucking sound amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how CBGB's was, right? It looks like a piece of shit, and like that sound system is like... Good God. <laughs> yeah, we played CB's. And I know it was at the tail end of, of, of CB's existence, but, you know, it got us out there to the East Coast, and the guys from Municipal Boys said, so what are you guys doing now? And we said, well, we don't know. And they go, let's go on tour. And we just played all these house parties. Sick. Us and Municipal Boys just went up and down the East Coast playing wherever we could. Yeah. We played in an abandoned house, and they were slamming through the living room, into the kitchen, down the hallway, <laughs> through the dining room, and back into the living room. <laughs> Just going in a big circle. <laughs> you know, that's great. That was, that's the fun part of doing it. You know, I'm, I'm 57. I'm playing to a room full of 15-year-olds that are, you know, really into the music, and then there's, we need a place to stay, and some kid's like, ah, my parents aren't home, and 
you go and you sleep on the floor and then the parents come home and you wake up and it's some dad looking at you like, who are you and what are you doing here? And you realize, wow, I'm like 15 years older than this guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, your daughter said we could stay here. You know, that yeah. turns into some weird situations. Yeah. You know, like, uh, you know, my daughter's 19. If I, you know, woke up to a room full of, you know, much, much older guys that she invited over because she'd been at their gig. I don't know. I would, well, I'd probably handle it pretty well because I've been in that situation. It's almost just too bizarre. You got to let it go. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'll still do it. I will still go and play squats. Uh, last year, uh, did a tour with NBC all over Germany and stuff. And we played squats, 200 people in fucking 120 degree basements with everybody smoking right in front of you. And, we slept in some fucking amazingly old, beat up, rundown squats, and I had the time of my life. Yeah, it's you know I'm. I don't require the the tour bus and the you know fucking five hundred thread count sheets and all that shit. You know because I've, I've I've gone out teching and advising, consulting in in various manners, different bands and. You know, because when I'm when I'm not on when I'm not doing music, I I help people with uh, drug and alcohol problems. I got sober 22 years ago, and I know what it's like being on the road and just feeling pretty fucked up if you're trying to maintain your sobriety or you, you think it might be a good idea to do it. So I've worked with a number of bands, and I've been spending a lot of time in Europe. That's why I moved to Copenhagen. Um, cause it's a, the starting point for a lot of people or London. I can get shit. Last time I flew to London was eight euros from Copenhagen to London. They got really cheap flights. Holy cow. Yeah. It's like $11. Yeah. You know, to, to fly for an hour. It's like, you can't go to San Francisco for $11. No. You can't take a bus or a train or anything. You know, it's a couple hundred. Yeah. But over there you can get around easily. You know, I don't have a car in Copenhagen. I have a little tiny apartment. Got a warm jacket. I got some warm boots, and I got some some other shit. And and a lot of the Danish people think that I have way too much and I'm too American. Yeah, because I have two bicycles. Yeah, you know, it's like wow, that's pretty fancy. You gotta have one for your lady. Yeah, <laughs> the ladies over there are very independent, yeah. and they've got their own everything. They don't rely on guys. It's, well, I'm sorry. If, I'm sorry if that offended. You know, we played <laughs> Retaliate played Sweden, and I was on stage, and I was like. Man, you guys have some beautiful women here. And some girl got mad at me. Like, I got off stage, and I was like, this is sick. We got flown to Sweden to play one show. You know, we're on top of the world. We go backstage, and there's this girl waiting for me. And she's like, I can't believe you said that. That's so misogynistic. And this and that. I was like, I'm just saying it, right? Because I live in San Diego now, and the first thing I noticed when I moved to San Diego is like, you can't go anywhere without seeing beautiful people you know it's like you can go all day in oxnard and not see a pretty girl yeah you that's know? true Which, well, unless you come across you know the drummer of auxilio but, uh, <laughs> she's, Jesus, she's gonna kill me for Jesus, that Brandon. christine knows i fucking got a sweet spot for her. dude that um, band rips they're amazing they killed it at punk rock bowling with yeah. 200 bands played that whole thing that yeah. entire weekend and they were named one of the top 12 backs i saw that so yeah, sick. Was, I'm so stoked for them, and you know they're technically not an hardcore band. The majority no, of people are from from LA, but Christine 
holds it down and they're geez. a hardcore band featuring members from LA. Yeah, she's a fucking badass. Yeah. You know? Well, it was like RKL was pretty much considered part of our family. You know, they were uh, as accepted as uh, as hardcore as anybody else, and they were from Santa Barbara. But yeah, can you talk about that? Because I've had a couple people um, hit me up because I refer to the Big Four of hardcore, and people now, you know, RKL has a big fan base still, oh, yeah. and and they'll they'll hit me up and say, you know, you talk about the Big Four, but what about RKL? Shouldn't it be five? They were our cousins more than they were our brothers. Yeah. Um, but still part of the family. Yeah. But because of the distance and, you know, we played with them. We played with them a few times. Um, several times. Hell, when I threw the Nardcore 20th anniversary show with uh, Lorenzana Brothers um, at the Skate Palace in Wainimi, uh, I asked RKL to play it. it. It wouldn't have made sense to throw a Nardcore party without them. Yeah, and yeah. they're on the narco comp. Yeah, but and, the, I, and uh, I wanted no effects on it because they had Dave Casillas in it. And, uh, you know, they were kind of by proxy, you know, Nardcore-ish. You know, Fat Mike, lived, they lived in Santa Barbara for a while, and, and they were a fucking horrible band in 83. Like, nobody wanted to, nobody <laughs> wanted to play with no effects. They were really, really bad. I remember Fat Mike coming up and saying, oh, we want to play, we want to play. It's like, oh, we're in the Red Barn. And it's like, well... Go get a PA. There's no PA here. And somehow he went and he wrangled a PA and was like, okay, you guys can play. Now. It's four in the afternoon. Yeah, you're the openers. <laughs> and everybody else started around eight or nine. <laughs> but they got to play the show. I mean, they were that bad. They were fucking horrible. Those and first two they, seven inches are not good. They and they but they just kept doing it and they just kept doing it. And then they got better and that's one band I will say their first album was not their best. No. Their new album, I, I was up there hanging out with Mike and I was while they were recording it and I gotta say there's some songs on there that are fucking amazing. I mean, for as as, as fucked up as that guy is, he's a genius at writing lyrics and you know, his his bass playing is heavily influenced by Bomber and you know, Little Joe was like his little understudy and you know i'm not necessarily a big fan of pop punk um except for like the original guys and buzzcocks and you know the i'm really gonna piss off a lot of my friends if i say anything more but uh you're gonna piss off a whole another sect of people if you don't yeah, well, now that you've teased <laughs> Well, I said I'm not a big fan of pop punk. You know, I'm not a big Blink-182 fan. Or a, I do like Green Day, for, for what it's worth. Their, their first album was pretty fucking good. You know, I did like Operation Ivy, so if I you know, want to talk shit about Scots, like i got to kind of swallow it a little bit and say, you know what, that band wasn't bad. They don't have horns. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, bring horns into it. It's just... Ugh. So, any, anything else you you feel like you want to talk about, or? Um, I, I did an interview recently with this uh, magazine, Paradigm, after we played a backyard show in uh, in Oxnard a few months ago when I was over here the last time from Copenhagen, and it was probably one of the funnest shows I've ever played. It was supposed to be at Pepe's on Silver Strand, and the cops came and broke it up after like a band and a half, and we moved it over to this kid's house. It was like in eighth grade. Yeah. So here guys that are like 56, 57 years old going over to an eighth grader's house to go play. (laughs) 
And the mom and dad are like, oh, yeah, come on, set up in the back. And, you know, do you guys need a power extension? And and, and, and it was just kids, the, the word went out, and all these kids showed up. And it was, it was like basically a, a, a big Mexican crowd of kids from Oxnard. And then there was one blonde girl walking around with a broken, bloody nose. And I said, this is fucking awesome. I took a picture with the girl, and her dad saw it. He's like some Christian surfboard shaper in Ventura. And... A friend of mine knew the the parents, and they were asking, like, who's the guy in the photo with this, with our daughter? And I'm like, what? She's 18, right? <laughs> like, like, my daughter's 19. I would kill somebody. But uh, it, well, was, it, it, was, it was an amazing show, and the support and the, the love of, of the kids, you know, I didn't even have to sing. They knew every fucking word. Yeah, well, Nard is firing on all cylinders right now. You got it's going, you know, off, dude. Because there's a there's a band called Dead Heat that is like more of our hardcore type, like the the Retaliate stuff, and they're like hyped right now. So they're like getting flown to the East Coast and playing, and they just put out their first LP. They had uh, like a NLP of like their demo stuff before that, but like new LPs out, and then you got like the younger, the Civil Conflicts, and so forth, and they're firing. You got like bootleg, the older bootleg brigade. Yeah, bootleg is like a friends with them. Yeah, um, they're killing it. Just, Scott Porcho is turning me on to like a lot of the newer bands because I'm not here a lot. Yeah, and you know he'll send me like, hey, listen to this. I'm like, who's this? And he's like, they're from Ventura, or they're from Oxnard, or from Montalvo, or and Porcho's got his finger on the fucking pulse of this place. Yeah, and, uh, you got you got like, but it's it's almost like every decade is firing right now. You know, you got like the twenty and under year olds. You got like the dead heat guys are like twenty nine and under. You know, I'm thirty nine now. Retaliate's still going. You know, you got the Carrars and and Joe's got out of trust going again. Yep. You know, so you and then the, you got the no and Ill Repute. Everyone and, killing us. Yeah, and Stalag's still playing. And yeah, Stalag's playing. No's playing. Ill Repute's playing. So it's like, I don't know if it's ever been firing like cross generationally like this ever. The last time I was here visiting from Copenhagen, there were four shows in one night. Exactly. Happening in Ventura County. Yeah. And basically, Oxnard and Ventura. Yeah. <laughs> when does that fucking happen? Yeah. Eastmont posted on Facebook the other day, the Dead Boys are playing the garage in Ventura. Never thought I would say that. Mm-hmm. And they showed up and they fucking killed it. Yeah. And, and they brought a band with them from L.A., a, a D group. That everybody was just like, this is the best opening band. They were so fucking good. Like, we will, a lot of people will go see them again. That rules. So we are still discovering new music. And there are new bands coming out that are carrying the torch of of Nardcore, whatever that may mean to some people. I know what it means to us. Yeah. Those of us that have been a part of it for as long as we have been. And then guys like you that came in, you know, second or whatever generation, however. We're at least third wave. You know, but... You guys were such a fucking force. In Control was such a powerful, popular band. And I remember shows when we first got back together that we would do in Ojai with with you and Holier Than Thou. Mm-hmm. And, Very underrated band. And, uh, All holier, their holier Than Thou were fucking amazing. All their records. God damn, that was a good band. They were from Santa Barbara, right? Yes. Unbelievable. And the energy in those shows and those pits... Fucking, you know, and it's like my brother's in the pit with his kid who's, you know, drums in, uh, what band's he in? Civil Conflict? Huh? Declining 
Declining Youth. Yeah, that's that's another Nardcore band. You know, just doing it. And Declining these, Youth, shout out. These kids are, you know, getting generators and going to the Oxnard Skate Park and plugging in and just fucking playing. Yeah. They're just going for it. Yeah. They they threw shows at Pepe's and, and you know, the, they'll they'll go out to the dunes, they'll go to the ship at, at the south end of Silverstrand, they'll they'll play anywhere. And that guy Austin it puts shows on. He has this little warehouse, and he doesn't really let a lot of people know publicly. But if you know, you know. And he hosts like a lot of different types of bands, like artsy bands and sure trippy, you know, because he's all into the the microdosing and smoking the dabs and you know the whole you know four twenty culture. And it's I don't think that the scene has ever been more varied or more viable. Yeah, ever. No, I think that there's some for everyone, and and it's. I I think that I would like to hope that at least from my generation forward, we've always always been very accepting to people as long as like they're respectful, you know. And I I think that it's a good time to come in and find what works for you and and be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, th- th- some people take you know they slap the hardcore label on their bands like you're not. I don't even know you. I haven't lived here for 25 years, so <laughs> I, I, I don't know everybody. It's like, well, I'm not really from here anymore, you know, but by choice. Um, but, yes, yeah, sometimes I think that Nardcore gets kind of co-opted a little bit. And, yeah, you know, I'm, maybe if me and Eastmile and Tony and Fanef and, uh, you know, Blake and Ron Baird all got together and, got very judgmental and started saying, yes, this is, and no, this isn't. That would just take away from the freedom that was afforded to us to call whatever we wanted, whatever we wanted and do whatever we wanted, you know, because we were a bunch of people that normally would not have hung out together. Like, I don't know that I would have known the Repute guys if they weren't in a punk band. You would have hated them because they're Wainimi. Yeah, they're fucking Wainimi. And where are they claiming Oxnard from? They're from Wainimi. I already made that joke. Yeah. yeah. If, if, you, if, you, if you consider that Silverstrand is county, unincorporated, the only true band that was, had the majority of people from Oxnard was Dr. Now. And that's just the fucking geographical truth. <laughs> I do like the idea of our bands having to appear before you guys and, and having you judge us. Yeah, I think we'll I, I proper nard. We'll we'll get uh, like we'll get like we'll get like a, a leg be a little YouTube channel. We'll get like a leg of, of fucking beef or lamb from one of the Carnesarias <laughs> in in Colonia. And we'll just go on Cooper Road and <laughs> start anointing people with you know the blood of <laughs> the blood of the Nard. Uh, yeah, we'll all cut our fingers and do blood oaths, and yeah, it would be fucking ridiculous. I think anybody that wants to be respectful to who came before them and and kind of command some respect on their own, like if you're gonna do this, fucking do it. Yeah, you know, because we got a long legacy, and yeah. and I've not been disappointed by ninety nine percent of what goes on that that wants to be part of this. Yeah, and. The, the small things are the small things, and I'm not really going to sweat it because it's 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 bigger than one person, and it's 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 it has to remain that place where people that don't belong anywhere else can feel that they belong. Yeah. And if I get to be a crusty old fuck that 
exclude somebody because of a geographical location or because I don't like the way their band sounds or I don't like the bands that they'll open for or if they're considering signing to Mystic or whatever. So I've talked a couple bands out of signing to Mystic. I'm very happy about that. Well, there's no signing. Well, I've, I've, <laughs> talked, I've talked to Doug before, and, and, <laughs> I, and he says basically, okay, here's how it works. You pay for everything, and then you get a small percentage of records. It's like, <laughs> wait, so I'm, I fund the label. What? And But I, I think, look, I'll tell you what. He said exactly how it worked. I said, not interested. And that's that. You know, maybe he has gotten honest. No. Um, but, in, in regards, but actually, to, the, in regards was, to that, he said exactly how it was going to work. Well, okay. But then he doesn't tell you that he's going to take your master and put it out 17 years later and then 37 years later and keep repackaging it. Like, there's a new compilation. There's a new copulation. Yeah. There's a new party or go home. Yeah. There's, and there's all these new bands on it and it's, and, and the old bands. And it's because he has all the masters and he can do what he wants and he doesn't care about contracts. And who's going to sue him? You know, NoFX was really fucking pissed off about the way he was handling their old catalog that he had of theirs, the, the recordings that he had the masters to. And Fat Mike's a fucking millionaire and, and he could own the dude. But he's like, you know what? He puts out the fucking music. What are we going to do? Yeah. Like, and, and, and Fat Mike was the one who talked me out of, out of even thinking of suing him. He goes, I could have sued him a hundred times over. He goes, but why spend 20 grand to get 200? Because, yeah. you know, you, you, you can't squeeze blood out of a rock. And, and Moody's just an old fossil. There's no fucking juice in there. So, okay, you're going to rip off everybody. You're going to bootleg all this shit. You know what? At least some kid's going to find an old aggression CD or a, 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 a compilation of, of a bunch of great bands and maybe discover it for the first time. And he did do some good for some bands that would have never been put out by, you know, at the time there was there wasn't Epitaph yet. There was maybe... You know, like, for instance, if you wanted to compare it to something, it's like that Stalag was impossible to get in the 90s. Right. I'm assuming the late 80s and 90s because Upstart, they printed however many records they did, and the only other people that put it out was Lost and Found, and they had to have gotten bootlegged by them too, right? Right. Because Lost and Found is super notorious for that. So the Stalag record, it, it was like 20 years of not being officially put out until Dr. Strange did it, you know? You know, and and just labels in general, like the bands that I talked out of doing it, of signing with Mystic, due to personal experience, um, they asked, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, he's promised us all this stuff. And I said, well, it's probably pretty empty promises. And you got the internet now. Load this, load this shit up. There's Bandcamp. There's SoundCloud. There's well, just put it out yourself. Put and it out yourself. Print your own labels. Like, they can control 7-inch. We just put the Mystic labels on the B-side. He can sue me. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, we're, we're, you know, I'm back in the States now for a little while. Um, you know, I, I, I do have to get back to Europe eventually. Um, to play more music, I have a band in Copenhagen called Ass Bastard, and we do we do covers, and I play kazoo, and uh, <laughs> we have an electric bass, acoustic guitar, and the the guy sits on a cajon and bangs on it. So it's not a traditional band, and I I brought home a pickup for my kazoo, so I now have an electric kazoo, and uh, we're pretty disturbing, and we do basically feminist, female oriented songs. Um, we're doing a bikini kill, uh, uh, pretenders, 
uh, X-ray specs. So we're doing all these female-oriented songs, but it's a bunch of guys doing them. You know, it's 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 kind of fun to to look at these Danish punks. Like, okay, this sounds familiar, but okay, it's the wrong gender doing it, and it's on all the wrong instruments. <coughs> sure, but. They're getting a kick out of it. I yeah. mean, we're getting invited to do some, some, some pretty big shit. <laughs> it's like, really? You wanted us to play at the Roskilde Festival? It's a huge fucking festival. It's like, yeah, you guys are funny. It's like, well, okay, someone's we'll do it. Someone's got to play at four p.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no effects is in the band. <laughs> 1983. No effects is no longer existing, so we'll get ass bastard to do it. But I think we're going to change the name again. Every gig, I think, will change your name. But I, w- I was talking to you, Small, because I think while I'm, we're here, we're going to start writing some new stuff. And um, I think we're going to have it put out on Mystic. Do it. Why the fuck that, not? That would, that would be the <laughs> ultimate mind fuck, right? <laughs> like, I just didn't want all you guys on the label because we want to be the fucking big cheese on this one. So. want to make sure that he has that recording budget to capture us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. We'll probably record it ourselves on iPhones yeah. and, and get that good Mystic sound. <laughs> and uh, then he can rip us off again and it'll be like old times it'll be beautiful <laughs> yeah to be we'll, young we'll reminisce like remember when we got ripped off by this guy before <laughs> it felt, it felt never so changed. much more real though in 2020 yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I like the idea of bootlegging mystic like maybe we'll just spell it with an I two I's you know I did find I found this <laughs> there's a battalion of saints bootleg it's like a someone bootleg mystic. I saw it. How it's dare pretty, they? It's <laughs> it's pretty sick. I saw. I didn't buy it, but I saw it, and I was like, "This is hilarious!" Because it's out as a mystic record. And it's not a mystic. So. Oh, that's fucking turnaround. Yeah. It's fair play. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I have been outspoken about mystic and my disdain for what he's done. But then I think back and I was like, "Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't have heard a lot of these bands." And that's more important than anything is getting it out there. It is what it is. But nowadays you don't need anybody to put things out. You can do it yourself. Yep. And that is what this whole thing was all about was doing it yourself. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Copenhagen scene is showing me that, that like do it yourself exists. Like, because nobody's, I don't know there's a label there. Every band over there is just doing their own thing and funding their own touring. <laughs> they get paid by the government to do it. Because they pay a lot in taxes, but they get a lot in return. And I've had friends of mine that you know I, I grew up with that I've known for a long time here in Oxnard, and they're like, "So how is it over there in commie Denmark?" Yeah. Like, um, you don't understand socialism, do you? No. The, when we went to Sweden, they they took like a zero interest government loan to like fly us there, and then paid it back. You know, yeah. it's like because the Swedish government encourages the arts. So it's like, it's summertime, it's time to bring a bunch of bands in so people can, like, meet people from all over the world. Yeah, yeah It's they, like, and the more people you know, the the less scared you are of everyone. The I know, I know a group of skaters in Copenhagen, they run a uh, an indoor skate park, and they were called before the government, and they were asked if they could help build more DIY parks. Yeah. Like, we'll give you the cement, we'll give you money, we'll get you rebar, um, we'll tell you where you can build them. Or you find them and you tell us where you want to put them, and because the kids need something to do, and and my roommate over there, he uh, he works for a, a, a place called uh, Kraftwerke, and 
The Underwerke is the venue. Yeah, where we played. The Underwerke is a, uh, a government-funded uh, youth uh, organization, and they pay for the bands to play. So what comes in at the door and what beer sales there are, and they serve like 16-year-olds. They don't care. And you can smoke anywhere. So it's pretty free. Um, the people that work there get to keep it, and they divide it. And, you know, uh, it doesn't matter if you're the guy taking the money at the door or you're the guy that's the bartender or you're the sound guy. They all split it. And, they, and the government pays all the bills. <coughs> and, and well, it's amazing what happens when you're not uh, paying to drop bombs on brown people in other countries. Yeah, well, you know, American you know, greed. There's a lot of brown people here they could drop bombs on. Yeah, Sorry. yeah there are. <laughs> drop one on Eastmile. It would be horrible. If they, but, uh, if, they dry, if they drop bombs on brown people in Oxnard, half of the Nardcore scene would be gone, <laughs> if not more. <laughs> and that—that's the thing that I'm, that I'm no, really like, stoked to be involved with this scene because it's not just a bunch of—I wouldn't say Orange County white people. It's just not. It doesn't matter what you are here. Right. No, nobody fucking cares, you know. And 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 I've seen bands come in and, and play with other bands that nobody may have heard of and. There's a band from Ventura called Crush the Flowers. And they were fucking amazing. I'd never heard of them. Never <laughs> seen them play. And these guys played like this weird psychedelic stoner, sledgy, doomy kind of stuff. And I walked up to the guy and I'm like, I, I think you're fucking amazing. I want to, you don't have a singer. Why? And he's like, um, nobody sings. I'm like, I will. Let's do something. So I'm just waiting for Scott from Crush the Flowers to get a hold of me now that I'm back. And, because Isma asked me, hey, you got another band over there? You know, like hardcore? You playing punk rock? like, no, I already have a punk rock band. I do kazoo. And, uh, and by, by the time this comes out, shit. you'll be gone again. Right. Oh, yeah. But then, <laughs> but just ask Josh Stamps. Um, I'll be back. <laughs> he makes so much fun of me. He's like, you don't leave for very long. You're still from here. <laughs> like, no, I'm not American. I I haven't given up my citizenship, but it's really hard to get Danish citizenship. So maybe I'll have to go to Italy. I'm just touring the world because I can. Yeah. And it's fun. And I get to play music all over the world and, and experience different cultures. And, you know, that's that's growth. Like when we all went together over to Europe, I mean, we were like little kids. We, just, we stayed in this, this hotel in Karlsruhe, Germany. That was so fucking bizarre. <laughs> with these weird statues and odd automobiles. Mouth. Yeah, you walked into like the mouth. It was like a Disneyland designed by somebody on acid, and then they didn't take care of it for 20 years. And then you stayed in these like 1970s rooms that had like AM, FM, 8-track, modular bed things, and <laughs> it was, it's bizarre over there. And then some of the squats that we played just were... There's a club in Germany, I think in Dusseldorf, and we pulled up, and there's a mural of Blake, the, the In Control album, painted on the side of the fucking building. That's like, great. I'm like, Blake, there you are. He's like, what? That's not me. Because Jaime drew it. Right. And, and, it, and it was always thought that it was Blake, but Blake would always say it wasn't him. It's fucking Blake. It has it, to be Blake. It 
No, AK-47 was the place where the whole neighborhood was painted. Yes, okay, so it was all talker, right? Uh, somewhere, I don't know. Slaughterhouse? I don't know. Germany's a great place to play. Just the thing about Germany, it's full of Germans. You had to be Blake because... <laughs> uh, no, no offense, German people. Dave Casillas doesn't come off as a jumper. No, <laughs> no, he no. It wasn't a, a mural. He's the somebody shredder. falling. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, shredder. Yeah. it was somebody jumping. Is a, the shredder and Blake was a fifteen-year-old that was jumping, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Blake wanted to be Brian Baker. Ron Baird carried lyrics around in a briefcase because he heard Ian McKay did that. <laughs> <laughs> they were. But the amount of LSD I did with Stalag Thirteen really makes me think that they were not a straight edge band. <laughs> But they had their moments of clear-headedness. Midweek, Tuesday to Thursday. <laughs> as as a as a as an early flip side article quotes Blake, we're straight edge in our own way. <laughs> <laughs> and that that about sums that up. That's a good that's a good place to end everything. That was funny. So yeah, thanks for uh, for doing this podcast. You're putting together a quite a history of uh, of our scene with you know. A lot of different people. That's the intention is to, uh, I mean, I've said it a million times on here now, but basically there was a couple podcasts I like and, or I liked and I, you know, would email them. Hey, you should interview this guy. You should interview this guy. And it was like, why am I telling someone else who to interview? That's, that's yeah. not like what punk is about, you know, just do it yeah. yourself. So that's it. Exactly. Just start a podcast. Yeah. Just do it. Put it up on, now you can, you don't need a I heart radio contract to do it. You fucking put it up and people spread the word and, you know, yep. get, send me a link to it. I'll put it up on my it's Facebook and my social media. Yeah. But this year and so far, what are we like six months into the, the year now? Yep. I have like hit delete and not send on so many things because I won't get involved with politics and I won't get involved with like the politics of Nardcore. I won't argue with Forrest or Jeremy about anything <laughs> or Tony I mean Tony and I wouldn't speak for like two years over some stupid shit I can't even remember what Tony Cortez one of my fucking closest dearest friends for decades we got into some discussion about something that we, we probably both agreed on but you know he had his way I had my way and it was like well fuck you fuck you it probably had something to do with Mystic or Nardcore or something stupid cause yeah I've been very outspoken and I've pissed off a lot of people. And I'm allowed to do that. Because, sure. you know, I don't, I don't expect people to censor me. I don't expect to censor other people. I'm going to say what's on my mind. But upon some reflection, it's the beginning of the year, or just before the beginning of the year, I wonder if I can not get into arguments on the fucking internet with people for a year. That did would you, be interesting. Did you start doing yoga? Uh, <laughs> no, I don't do yoga. I did get into meditation and stuff. And well, that's even gnarlier. I'm almost a uh, empowered Buddhist uh, meditation. No, that's Hare Krishna. So different. God, Ellen, you have so much to learn. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap it up. Do you, do you feel like you've been well represented? Fuck no, I could go on for hours, dude. <laughs> well, you can always do a part two. Jot down some stuff you want to talk about. Maybe, you, maybe do, we'll... you, do you know who I think I am, Jack? 
We can come back in the theater. <laughs> I know, I know. We can end it there. All right. <laughs> I'm hitting the button. <laughs>